It was so fun to say the little Samuel had been found trouble, wouldn't you? I'm no servant. My name is Mary Lemons. My mother was sister to the mistress of this house, and my uncle owns it still, and you'll do well to give me respect on you. I'll give you none. I'm Colin Craven, and the uncle you speak of is my father. If I were to live, this place would belong to me. Cousins. I've never heard of you, nor I of you. Adaptations like this is one of the reasons why I have so little optimism for anything anymore. Whenever, whenever something gets announced, and I feel so foolish whenever I do something, and I'm like, maybe this will be the thing. Maybe this will be something that awakens something in me in a, in, in a completely not sexual sense, you know, just in a yeah. kind of an inspirational sense. And, and I mean, I really did not read anything about this film. I really tried to be like, come into it as, as kind of fresh and as I could. And I was so blown away by how bad it was. It is, it is sort of like so Hollywood as usual, I think. The Secret it's Garden is the film 2020 deserves. Yeah, I think it's the, no, it's, well, I just want to thank, say, say thank you, Nicole, for joining in on my mad little project that I've been doing. So introducing, I'm so excited. So today I have this amazing guest for all the listeners of Nicole Bernstein, who I've known for so long. She's the author of two fantastic YA novels. One of them, The Other Girl, I remember I was working at Foils when it came out. Thank you. Did I yes. know you back then? I remember you from Gosh, so I don't know if I actually knew you back then. Probably Did I? not, because I remember I was at the South Bank Foils. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it was on the front table, in because there was like a YA kids table, and I remember there was a pile of them on there. Oh, that was very exciting times. It did, it did really <laughs> well. And then you had Wonder Boy after that, the follow-up. Yep. And, so cool, I read about your new book that's coming out next year. Um, the ebook's already out at okay. the end of January. Um, yes. It's something a bit different to the extent where my publishers were like, you can't publish under your name because you're a children's okay. writer. That name has been like, that name, that's too wholesome a brand. <laughs> so um, I, and actually the name, my pen name is relevant for what we're going to be talking about. So um, today, but yeah, I'm publishing some more grown up rom com type yes. things. Adult Virgins Anonymous. My grandma likes to say it's a book that sounds dirty, but is not. Okay. So <laughs> oh, I wanted it to be dirtier. Where's my Fabio? Oh, okay, there's two, there's two chapters mm-hmm. where it's a bit like, oh my God, I can't let anyone I know ever read this. Like I almost want to tear out, I'm kind of predicting I'm going to have to tear out those pages when it gets to it. But the whole point is it for it to be a very sweet, wholesome romance between people who are very, very awkward and don't know what they're doing. And um, in that sense, the naughtier scenes hopefully are quite sweet rather than um, titillating and raunchy and anything like that. That's not what I, if if anyone, if anyone is turned on by my sex scenes, that's not what I was going for. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. I mean, who isn't awkward in that scenario? It's a first time story. It's the first time story, except that the the characters are grown-ups. So it was like trying to get that first time essence into something that in my head I'm thinking I'm just basically writing YA for, for adult with adults. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still mad at Buffy for portraying her first time as so like lovely and beautiful. It doesn't 
happen. That is not what it's like. It's not. I mean, there. I'm sure there are some people who meet their, you know, true loves and have the most sensitive, wonderful, and romantic experience in the universe. But um, I think I wanted to write a book for people for whom not only does that not happen until much later in life, um, but also when it does happen, it might not necessarily even be for romantic reasons. No spoilers in this book, but when these characters get together it's mm-hmm. not because they're deeply in love and um at least not yet <laughs> and I just wanted to be realistic more than yeah. anything but um yeah so far going well I've had some really good reviews oh. my grandma has read it and she's still talking to me um and yeah hopefully fingers crossed I can't say too much uh, yeah. right now but fingers crossed more on the horizon no it so, sounds like uh, such a good premise and also I like the idea of your career into, I mean, I wouldn't say adulthood, but you know, the adult <laughs> But honestly, I, I, when I, when I named the book Adult Virgins Anonymous, mm-hmm. I kind of always presumed, and I presume this with all books, and it's something if you're not in, in literature, you may not know, but you don't often get complete control, certainly not over your covers, but maybe yeah. not even over your titles. So whenever I title something, I kind of always consider it a working title and presume it's going to get changed down down the road like Mm -hmm. it I'm never precious about it because it's not that important and the people who market books and publicize books and edit books tend to know a lot more about what's going to work um I've been very lucky with my titles every title I've chosen has been the title that's gone through but I did not think that was going to happen with Adult Virgins Anonymous and I seriously thought they were going to go what is this we can't handle this <laughs> and um but no I have a title that when people ask me what my book is called I don't like to say it because it feels weird oh <laughs> uh, I mean that's it's a great conversation starting with stopper stopper <laughs> adult virgins anonymous and what's it about well well adult virgins <laughs> I mean if you don't know I mean it is like a great selling title because you know what it's about from the title you don't need to explain anything look I I'm I I just I I I, I've got to be honest with you even in my own computer I call it AVA rather than anything else because I still get I'm still sort of slightly embarrassed by it but um in a sense that just do you know what the reason I'm embarrassed about it is because of the taboo that my book is actually tackling and it's something that so few people talk about and deal with and we're so not used to talking about in society about people who might reach what are considered normal stages of adulthood maybe a bit later on for whatever reason that may be because they've not met the right person or because they just don't want to like some people just aren't interested in that and I try and look at that in the book as well but um yeah the fact that I am myself so reticent to even say my own book title is maybe indicative of something I want to tackle so maybe 20 years down the line I'll be just like virgins everywhere I know (laughs) there is such a stigma against it that it is unfortunate especially when like you're in your late teens and early 20s that you can't really it's like you whisper you whisper about it behind closed doors closed dorm rooms or you know things like that yeah and everyone should read your book and hopefully I will be doing an episode on one of your books someday but actually one thing I didn't say like there is like the reason I'm so excited about talking to you today is that when my editor asked me to can I think of a name that I can use for my romance novels Mm -hmm. 
um, I I knew instantly that I wanted to take a name from a Francis Hodgson Burnett character. Yeah. And um, my first name in my in my new novels is Amber, and that's because my last name is a Yiddish name that translates to Amber. But mm-hmm. I knew for a surname, I wanted to go well initially with Craven because wow. I always just thought Craven was the coolest last name in the universe and have been mm-hmm. obsessed with it. But Amber Craven doesn't quite sound romancy enough, and <laughs> I it just doesn't it just doesn't. Yeah. And uh, Amber Crew named after from a different Francis Hutchinson Burnett book, uh, Little Princess, which is my one of my favorite books of all time. Um, I was like, well, yeah, I, I very much based a lot of my <laughs> early year personality on Sarah Crew um, and her like, you know, Little Princess, uh, Little yeah. Princess. But um, so I feel like I have a really, really, really deep connection with these stories and with these characters. And I think that's probably why I feel quite so offended by this. Um, well, hopefully they won't be doing an adaptation of a little princess anytime soon <laughs> and no because i don't like the film that's already exists of that one so they I haven't watched it in a long time i only have vague memories of it they they made it very very saccharine which is something that you know is something that's in the book but um they gave it a very happy ending they had the father come back mm-hmm. at the end. Oh, i do remember <laughs> that Spoilers for a hundred-year-old book, um, but yeah, they they made it very very sweet, and I think with um, there's uh, this maybe something we'll touch on with this book. But there's a lot of um, imperialist notions in Francis Hodgson's next work, and I actually feel like a Little Princess is something that would be really great to revisit from a modern viewpoint, but looking back at what things were really like back mm-hmm. in those days, because the adaptation that exists of that story, I feel like, is very chocolate box. Yeah. Um, and very perfect and and it's delightful to watch but I I don't remember that story that way from reading it that story yeah. was about hardship and 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 still retain being true to yourself and being a kind compassionate person despite hardship and um that's that's something that that film didn't do it's a lovely adaptation but maybe but again I don't want to wish an adaptation of that book into the world because it's only going to be a <laughs> Happen. it's gonna happen our, our last episode we did was the witches and that was another discussion about someone maybe not understanding what the book was about they really I, I this is something I wanted to ask whether you have any like insight or ideas about this but when the studios go right we need to make a film why where do they come to the decision that now is the time to remake this film and the reason I asked is because I did read recently like last year there were two adaptations of War of the Worlds mm-hmm. and um, I read somewhere that adaptations of War of the Worlds happen very very specifically during times of political turmoil in the world yeah. uh, where there's a threat of disaster uh, we see adaptations of War of the Worlds and you apparently can time the most famous adaptations with these terrible events in world history of which you know coming to the end of the you know of, of you know of, of our decade is one of them yeah. um, and and you know when I think of okay so if that's why they remake War of the Worlds why do they remake The Secret Garden and I'm trying to imagine the conversation that happens at the studios where a screenwriter or a director or yeah. someone comes in and goes, this is the film, now is the moment. And I'm trying to work out what happened and who came up with that decision and why that happened. And then this got made. I, what do you think? 
Well, I don't necessarily think it's as clever as that all the time. Just having done so many of these that there isn't enough of a pattern that I've seen thus yet. A lot of times it's actually just due to copyright and licensing. So there are examples of properties that get made because if they don't make it within a certain period of time, they'll lose the license over that property. So they're just like, we have to make a film. It doesn't matter what it is. So they own some big name. So they just need to, I think like Fantastic Four is a good example of that. That is a very good example. So things like that, sometimes it's just, they have on the books a screenplay writer who's wrote in a spec script for something and they're like, this looks easy. We'll give this project to someone and he can see if he can do something with it. The thing is, I think it's something like 60% of films are based off of like previous material books plays news articles so it's just easier to work with source material than having an original idea it looks it seems <laughs> and when you have the source material like this is the other thing I want to point out I love I love a good adaptation and I do not believe an adaptation has to be faithful to the book entirely no, not at all exactly it really doesn't but I feel like something it does have to be faithful to is the central themes the, the the skeleton like it yeah. can be it can be completely unfaithful to the flesh but it has to be true to the skeleton of, of the it needs to have the essence it yes is, the it doesn't need to visually look like it but it has to capture the capture the essence and this film did not do that <laughs> this film looked at the central tenets of what makes the secret garden fantastic as a story and I did read I re- read and just went no we're not interested in that. We're not interested in the fact that, you know, traumatized children can, you know, you know, be terrible children and, but they have to learn to grow and maybe being in the outdoors and, you know, maybe we can all grow into better people if we're just given a chance. Instead, this book went, we must redeem the parents. We must make sure that everyone knows that the parents are good people. And it's not their fault that you're screwed up. (laughs) Because the children our personalityless blank slates it doesn't matter who the children are what's important is that the parents are justified in their actions and the parents are respected and the parents have a good wholesome happy ending okay before we and- wait before we get to the film we're going to talk about the book and how amazing okay. the book is, <laughs> the book is amazing. <laughs> okay so let's introduce Frances Hodgson Burnett who I adore who's an amazing author so she lived from 1849 to 1924 She wrote A Little Princess and The Secret Garden, very famously. She was from Manchester, England, but then she moved to the United States. She's written 35 books. I would highly recommend her adult fiction. They're actually my favorite. So The Shuttle in the Making of the Marchioness, I think that's how you say it, uh, which looks at relationships in upper-class society are amazing. I don't think there's been adaptations of it. And my question to you is, do you remember when you first interacted with this book, when you first read it? Yes, and it is probably through the original film. Um, okay. I was a Little Princess girl, so my memories of first reading and encountering Little Princess are incredibly vivid. Uh-huh. And then that knowing about that and probably me being around the same age, um, not only as the characters in the book, but also at the same age as, as, that, as that Secret Garden adaptation coming out, probably then led me to go oh wait okay this is someone I need to check out she wrote another book oh my god I think I was a big reader from a very very early age and um 
I think especially when I found Little Princess and that's my story of Little Princess is that I went to my dad had an office party where the kids were allowed to come and I used to go every year and they used to get McDonald's for us and it was a home we were allowed to play on the phones like yeah. I don't think it exists anymore but we went into this big office we could play on the phones and call up all the other phones all the kids played and we all got presents and um, my present was a copy of The Little Princess and I remember it dearly it was a Dover Thrift edition so they really went all out Um, so but that was my book and I remember reading that identifying identifying strongly then hearing about oh there's this film and there's another book and she's written more and so my memory of The Secret Garden is is more vivid for the film and I was one of those terrible kids who used to go and go well it isn't like that in the real story and yeah. when kid, when people used to rave about a you know I was ter- Little Mermaid again I was terrible in that one did you know she turns into sea foam at the end um I was kind of like that as a kid because I read so much and I was the only person I knew who did read that much but um yeah The Secret Garden just kind of came into my life at around that age um also obviously this is a podcast but I will show Nora at some point that um there's a photo I me and my family had to dress up as for like one of these artificial photos where you pretend to be old people yeah. like Victorian. oh I remember that and yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that so we did one as a family and me as an Edwardian child looks oh identical to the actress that plays the child in the, the original Little Princess uh, in the original Secret Garden film and so I had this big identifying thing where I was like maybe I am her I don't know what's going on and I was, you know, it was all, it all, I was one of those kids where I was just trying to figure everything out and trying to find the patterns and everything I was experiencing. I'm going, but maybe this means this, maybe this means that. And The Secret Garden was just one of those books. And it, it led me, it, it gave you, I do remember it gave me such a sense of wanting to discover and being open to discovery. Um, it's something that Narnia did as well. Um, funny enough, I think Narnia is something that plays into this film quite a lot as well. Um, but yeah, but it's that sense of unlocking a door, finding the secret key, talking to Robins, you know, having a friend who talks to animals, like all these things that little girls want. Little yeah. girls want people who talk to animals. They want keys. I don't know, Nora, if you grew up in the UK, whether you had this, but there were these shoes that had a secret key in them. Like I'll yeah no this sounds amazing secret key shoes and 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 they're black patent shoes and um, I can't remember what they were called but in the adverts there was like a secret key and there was something in the bottom of the shoe that kind of looked like a key and then you got maybe a little necklace and I was never allowed one of these shoes because I my uh, I don't know my mum I never was never allowed these secret key shoes but they were the coolest shoes and it was all around the same time it's like secret keys to gardens and and I don't know there's something why are keys so magical keys are the most magical thing especially big keys yeah things that you don't know what they are and it's so so utterly magical and yeah so my my memories of the secret garden are just very much about wanting my own secret garden but also finding my own secret garden everywhere I was and looking for those kind of moments of hope and, and just kind of it also taught me that you do really need to be in tune with nature to be a fulfilled happy person like being outdoors I'm actually not an outdoorsy person at all but I appreciate nature greatly and it just teaches you that it teaches you that you don't and also I was probably quite a sickly child as well (laughs) I was ill quite a lot and it was just like I didn't want to be Colin Craven yeah I'm gonna be no I want to be Dickon (laughs) 
I wanted to, I well I kind of felt I was Mary so yeah. I kind of I just wanted to discover it but I I had chronic fatigue syndrome quite a lot when I was like nine or ten and mm-hmm. I did spend a lot of time very tired and in bed as one of these like invalid children and so again that's when the secret garden kind of you're reminded a bit constantly throughout childhood of all these things that just come in and just hopefully give you hope and inspiration to tell you things will get better and you have to work to get better mm-hmm. and also that you know, terrible things happen. I mean, that's another thing of this book. It's a really common thing in Francis Hodgson Burnett in general that really awful things happen to you sometimes and you just have to deal with it. <laughs> and I don't think there's a lot of children's literature or just in common culture that talks about, you know, kids can have problems and you need to talk to them in sort of an adult way of how to, and show them how to fix them. Yeah. Well, Mary, I mean, I don't know if, we'll t- if you want to talk about the beginning of the book. For me, I do remember specifically, it was like a school book fair and I got, it was like the green edition of the book with the illustration on the front and it came with a little key necklace. <gasps> keys, keys. It's all about keys. And I think it Girls was like, boys, they want keys. <laughs> I know. I think it was like I saw the necklace. Was like, who cares what the book is? I want the necklace. But yeah, no, I do remember. I think a little princess. The film was a little more popular for me personally versus a secret garden. I think. Mm-hmm. Just, I think the film was in general more popular. A little princess. I don't know why. But I just have stronger memories of watching that. But I did, yeah, I think it was probably like nine or ten when I got the book and got into it. So we open up with the book and we meet Mary Lennox, who is a quite sickly and disagreeable child. Oh, she's awful. Sour, yellow-faced. Yes. She's a brat, complete brat. She's living in India. She, I think it's 1911 that the book is written. So, you know peak colonial England she's being raised by a nanny named Aya I think it was and her parents are completely aloof her father's like a statesman soldier and very self-absorbed mother who just is flitting about from party to party and she just plays by herself is really you know I don't know if she realizes I mean she kind of realizes that she has no friends but sort of is quite a really digs her feet into the fact that she's a brat and then suddenly everything starts to change and interrupt me as I'm going along and so her nanny gets sick and disappears then all the other people who work there get sick they all get sick sick and they all die they all die everyone dies really quickly and my favorite part of the beginning of this book which is something I was really really hoping the film would do and they backed out again the cowards is that mary survives it because she doesn't drink the water she gets drunk wine (laughs) she drinks a feck load of wine passes out she's a booze hound she drinks her way through a cholera epidemic and i I think it's a really clever point that she does you know it's very pointed she drinks the wine yeah and and she she gets and and she basically passes out and and everyone around her dies she's yeah but also like one thing that's also really important because i I was very aware of this whole i don't even know if it was if it was a real thing but this sense of victorian children should be seen and not heard yeah and i feel like mary lennox was brought up in that sense so she was an ornamental child 
you know, I don't know what birth control conditions were like, but it's very clear her parents did not want children or if they did want children, it was more for the status of yeah. being parents rather than actually wanting to be parents and, and look after a child. So they just went about their life. And yeah, she was just there in the, in the nursery. And I'm sure I don't and know. It wasn't to... because they were depressed. No, they didn't. <laughs> They just didn't care. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's so important to point out that these weren't these weren't depressed parents or these weren't parents mis- who were misunderstood. It is very clear in the book that these are negligent parents who just don't care. And they're not they're very- apologize for it. They don't think they're doing something bad. And Mary knows it. Yeah. Mary, Mary is she's argumentative, she has tantrums, she is a horrible child to to be around but she kind of know and she, and, and you know she but she knows what she is and she knows what's up she's under no illusion but also there's this idea that she doesn't know any better she doesn't understand she's never experienced love either so she actually yeah. copes with it as best as she can and it's not a problem for her because this is just what her life is and she has all these luxuries and all this wine and and <laughs> it's actually one of the cleverest things in the book that she she gets through the cholera cholera epidemic mm-hmm. by drinking and it's a brief tiny moment and I don't think I even picked up on it as a child because I wouldn't have known back then that cholera came from the water and and you know that and you know and wine did anything to you more than you know I, I really wasn't that aware of things like that when I was reading this book so reading it as an adult I was like whoa this is really hardcore like she drinks away through an epidemic it is amazing because I, I, I'm kind of enjoying rereading some of these like classic children's books for as an adult because you're like oh my god I read this and didn't notice this aspect of it it's so dark it's so dark yeah I don't know if you want to continue with the story yes. but essentially, yeah the beginning is basically she is a lonely bratty <laughs> child who you know nothing but neglect and and not necessarily hate you, you get the impression her servants look after her but she is yeah. very aware that they are but it's out of them. obligation it's not because they yeah. care about her they're being paid to that's it See, yeah. that's the relationship absolutely she knows it she's a yeah. very aware child of all yes. of that so they all die <laughs> everyone and then the police come and they're, they are startled to find her because they think everyone's dead. And she was just like napping in her room. <laughs> I'm not sure the yeah. length of period, like in any of the films, they don't really specify how long it's been. Napping or hungover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and then she finds out they've all died and she's not really sad. Like she has no emotional connection to any of these people. It's really amazing, actually. So her psychology is great. Her psychology is like, this is another thing I think Frances Hodgson Bennett was particularly good at. And I am reading a biography of her at the moment. And it's very clear that she was incredibly observant of human relationships and, and how events affect a person. Yeah. And I think certainly more than like, I don't know how aware she was of, of, of Freud, of psychology, of, of analy- analysis or anything like that. But she really, really had an instinct for understanding that who you are as a person is affected by your experiences and the psychology of that. Like, yeah. I, more so than I think any other writer, certainly of children, probably not of adults, but certainly of children, you know, she understood that experience makes you and changes your psychology and you are who you are not because that's just who you are but because of the things that impact you and there aren't many writers in that era writing about children I think who understood that quite as well as she did and for children helping explain them it's like oh your parents treat you this way and you might feel this way but these are the things you could do to help yourself even because your parents are there for you 
Yeah, even the adults around her don't understand that. Like, yeah. the adults around Mary are just like, she's ugly. She's got a yellow face. Look at her. Yeah. She's skinny as anything. She's she's a horrible. Like they, she's called a horrible child so many times by grown ups. That and 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 yet, Francis Hodgson Burnett understands why she is the way she is and makes it very clear to the reader right from the outset that this is the way she is there's no doubt when you're reading it as a young person that you understand exactly why she is that way and that you're on her side even when she is a horrible little girl but she is because she's got no choice other than to be that way but the adults around her are just like oh my god look at you you're so ugly you're so you know oh it's like it's, it's incredible how she balances that and how she gets you on the character's side, even though she is distinctly unlikable at that point. Now we have her journey to England. So they send her to stay with a clergyman's family, which neither of the films cover, which is fine, I guess. And the children make fun of her. And this is where she gets the nickname Mistress Mary Quite Contrary. Because she doesn't make any attempt really to bond with these children, which we need to reference. Like she doesn't really care about them. She's, she, I think I've always felt like she's, she considers them beneath her. Yeah. She, she won't allow herself to make any attachments. She doesn't want to impress them. She doesn't, she doesn't, because she knows that she is someone who has all these fine clothes and these servants who run after her and she's never had to think about any of that. She's never had to impress anyone. She knows it's pointless. She's never had to be likable in any way shape or form because no one has ever shown any interest in her beyond being paid to show interest in her so when she's encountered by other children she is definitely hurt she she it wouldn't be an issue if it's if you know because she she's definitely aware that this isn't right but she doesn't know how to correct it and she just if anything it just steals her to be more contrary because she's like right then well they don't know what they're talking about they don't realize i'm really rich and i have all this you know all this stuff they're just idiots and you know and she she's 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 a brat. She's an absolute brat. So then we find out that she's going to go live with her uncle Craven, who lives in Misslewaite Manor. Am I saying it right? Misslewaite. Misslewaite <laughs> Manor. Misslewaite Manor. I, I, no, I shouldn't do that. I should need to. I, I wish. Oh, I can you? Where's your Yorkshire accent? Come I, on. Yorkshire. Yorkshire. Misslewaite Manor. <laughs> it might be that. I think it might. Be not do it. No, I can't do it. I won't do it. If I heard somebody, I can mimic somebody else, but I can't just make it up myself. <laughs> I would like to know someone's analysis of the Yorkshire accents in the films. She wasn't from Yorkshire, um, Francis. And and I mean, I'm I'm half about halfway through a biography of her. She grew up in Manchester, yeah, um, which is not far off. So she probably would have come across um, Yorkshire accents in in Manchester. But Manchester accents is very different. Um, and also, she she was she was around lower class people a lot throughout her childhood. Um, so she she apparently was very very good at picking up accents. But then she moved to America. You know, I think she was about nine or ten when she moved yeah, to America. So, so it's kind of surprising in this book that she writes in like colloquial Yorkshire accent. Yeah, it's weird. It is weird. And I I can't. I wish I'm I'm a Londoner through and through, so I've got no awareness of whether it's accurate Yorkshire. Um, yeah. it's it sounds accurate to me when I read it. I can hear it. In I totally forgot about the Yorkshire thing because in as a kid, I don't think I noticed it when I was reading it. I noticed it. But I don't know. I I I I do. I do, it wasn't a shock to me to see it in the book, um, like that. Because I think also I have such I have such big memories of Martha from the film that mm-hmm. I and so I did kind of 
anticipate it but yeah it is weird and it's really hard to know if it's true but I kind of I almost want to say it doesn't matter it it does matter but it doesn't matter and she might have been basing it more on the Mancunian accent more than anything which isn't as I said like it's very different if you're from that part of the world but (laughs) generally speaking for her for the audience she was writing for it wouldn't have been important at all and if anything it would have been quite you know would would have been quite strange to do in the book because um you know this is a this is a society which the classes are very separated and you are set by your class you know if you speak properly as Colin does in in you know in the book he's from York he's a Yorkshire boy and yet he speaks perfect yeah you know, Queen's English is it King's English in that era I think oh yeah King's that's true that <laughs> so he's 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 you know he's one of the but so the class differences are there. So I think it was quite daring for her to write it at the time. I haven't yeah. read too much analysis. I don't know too much about what society would have felt by it. But she is so loving of it. And I think that even if she got it wrong, it's so clear that the intention with the with the dialect is is loving and and she 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 adores it. It's it's considered the right way to speak in, in a Francis Hodgson Burnett novel. I think again, in any sort of ad- adaptation you do on this. You don't have to do that exactly. I don't think it's necessary to be specific in that sense to the book. You could represent talking about class in another way. That doesn't, it's something you don't need to hold for the book. So she gets picked up by Mrs. Medlock, the housekeeper. And I I quite like this little train scene where she's describing this gloomy house with her, you know, uncle that she'll never see because I mean, they use the word hunchback, which is a slightly mm-hmm. derogatory way to describe him and how he's isolated and the death of his wife destroyed him and she'll have to like stay alone in her room. And she's completely like just rolling her eyes, looking off and not engaging with her at all. <laughs> and also, if you're a slightly weird young girl, this is a perfect primer for the Brontes. Yeah. Like you're you're I mean obviously it's Yorkshire again so it's the Moors but um like this is pure gothic romance pure gothic romance for kids yeah (laughs) it's gonna be mad (laughs) they arrive at the manor and then you have the description of the landscape which is great which because she's completely shocked by the Moors just like what it's like foreign alien land like she doesn't understand understand the landscape and I, it's beautiful how they dis- she describes it and how bizarre it is. And then we get to meet Martha, the her, one of her maids. Little racist Martha. <laughs> A little racist Martha. We, ha- we have to acknowledge the extreme racism and colonialism of the book. It is there. Yeah. You know, yeah. talking about uh, Indians and being Black in Britain. And we cannot brush that under the carpet. But I do take into consideration this is 1911. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something else, you know, Frances was really, really, really firm abolitionist. She okay. was, um, she was really, um, she, well, I, there's a story I read in the biography where she was playing with her dolls and she was recreating a scene from Uncle Tom's cabin because mm-hmm. she was just so enamored by the book. And she, I think, especially the time she went over to America, um, I think it was obviously very hot on the agenda. She lived in Washington for quite a long time. So she was very aware of the politics of, of America. Um, she moved to America, I think, just after the Civil War. Um, so it was still kind of a, a country that was certainly where she was living. I think in Tennessee, I might be wrong. I'm remembering the biography. So um, 
she really was aware of those issues like mm-hmm. so that was really strange to me because when you I read the secret garden again first and I was like oh god this feels so off and weird and yeah. strange and then when you learn about Frances Hodgson Manette and you realize that she was keenly aware of race issues and she was actually incredibly progressive for her time it does make you think what happened or does yeah. that not apply to Indian people like it's it, weird it's a British thing. It's a British imperialist thing mm-hmm. that that she might feel very, and it's a cognitive dissonance where she might be, you know, having spent lots of time in America and might be thinking, well, no, yes, black people are definitely equal. But then when you're yeah. looking at imperialist England, yeah. whether those notions apply, I can't say, I don't know. Francis <laughs> Hodgins Burnett, but I also get the impression, and this is something, the, 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 defend, the thing I'll defend about the book is that, it's very clear Martha's ignorant and it's pointed out very very clearly that Martha's questions about oh my god I thought you were going to have dark skin I thought you were going to be a native I didn't understand it's made very very clear to the reader that the reason Martha is asking these questions is because she's ignorant mm-hmm. and she's un- and she's not educated yeah. it's what I found so I didn't find that quite as offensive as I found Mary's retaliation to that which is to be like how dare you <laughs> presume I could possibly be someone of Dalton and I was like oh okay Martha is it's clear to me Martha is just uneducated Yorkshire lass who's never seen anything out of her village um but Mary I was like really Mary like yes you are a little brat and you're awful and you're trying to assert dominance over your servant but also would she not be a little bit more compassionate to those people like I don't don't know actually I well I the author yes maybe but I don't think Mary at this point in the story would be. Maybe Mary at the end of the story would say something differently. Honestly, her retaliation of how dare you, you all, like she is, it is ugly to read in the book, just how offended she is. Because I was thinking, come on, Martha didn't say anything that bad. I know. (laughs) It was like, oh, they said you're coming from India. I thought you'd have more skin. And that's, I mean, that's actually quite reasonable. Like it's a reasonable assumption. She doesn't know anything. But then when she, and then it's Mary's offense to that that I find really prickly. Doesn't she slap her? Yeah, I think she might slap her. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and that as well. I'm just like, oh my God. (laughs) Just completely. Martha is Martha is Martha can do no wrong in my eyes Um, but Mary um it's part maybe it's part of her personality at that point in terms of how she reacts to things maybe it's to do with her wanting to assert her dominance over the servants because that's what she's used to um maybe it's because she really did believe that she was better than her servants because of the color of her skin um I mean if you're a what she is she nine or ten in the book she's yeah I think like, so. if you've been brought up by nothing but those servants and you, you have to treat them that way because they are servants then who knows I'm just yeah the slap it was it was a lot when you read it so because there's a whole interaction where Mary wants Martha to dress her and Martha's <laughs> like uh excuse me I'm not actually your servant I work for Ms. Medlock but I do not work for you <laughs> And I like that Martha sort of stands her ground against her. Martha can do no wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Martha, Martha is amazing. Martha works all day and night. Martha is a lower a lower maid. Martha yeah. is not a high up maid. Martha works, and having watched lots of Downton Abbey, I can only <laughs> presume that Martha's life is not great. Martha has to trudge miles home on her one day off she gets. Martha probably has to wake up at 
you know early in the morning goes to bed late at night she does nothing but work she doesn't get paid very much and she is bright as a button and and lovely and and friendly and really just of good cheer every time you see her in the book and that is possible that's probably possibly fantasy i don't know she's very young um and that struck me as uh, as strange when i read the book again because when i read first read the book she was a lot older mm-hmm. but now as an adult reading it i'm like martha's just a teenager yeah no that's yeah she's a kid too she's not that much older than mary yeah it's very and yet she has all this good cheer and spirit and it's just a really lovely force within the book um despite you know obviously her ignorant moments um she obviously hasn't been to school she hasn't yeah. she's got no she's very she's 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 wise about what she knows but she yeah. is not very worldly at all no i love i adore their interaction and this is when mary uh martha drops the garden you know the secret <gasps> garden tidbit and it, and mary's like a secret a garden and she's just <laughs> sort of like oh, what is this finally something interesting <laughs> yes oh bless her she hasn't had anything in her life i know i mean this is a girl, this is a girl that's like like the skipping rope is like her getting i don't know playstation five so <laughs> literally oh my gosh yeah here's a nintendo switch for you to play with oh my, oh my god and that's how she is with the skipping rope so you know this is this is the world she's living in so yeah hearing about a garden you know especially i mean Again, put yourself in the shoes. She's 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 seen nothing but the moors and this awful house that's bleak and and scary and empty and strange. And then she's told there is a garden somewhere. And I like to imagine that maybe coming from India, which is you know the flora and fauna is much more bountiful. It's a very humid country. It's a lot more color and 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 it's it dense with that kind of stuff. That maybe she's missing home that yeah. she hears of a garden and she's like wait there's somewhere that isn't just dreary gray yeah, yeah. moorland so this leads her to go explore the estate's gardens and you know see what's what and she meets ben weatherstaff <laughs> one of the groundskeepers <laughs> oh ben i love you wonderful rheumatic ben weatherstaff i love is- how he's eternally grumpy he never changes and it's perfect he's the kind of grumpy I understand so much more as a grown-up than I did as a kid because there's a kind of grumpy person we all know who is only mean to you when they like you Mm -hmm. if they don't like you they will ignore you and if they are mean to you it means they like to have you around they just don't have any other way to communicate and I feel like Ben Weatherstaff is one of those people where he'd rather have nothing to do with you but if he does happen to take a fondness he'll just be mean but the way that is it's, uh, it, yeah I've, I've he's he's wonderful he's absolutely yes. wonderful and he shows her his best friend robin a bird <laughs> the, the robin the robin never gets a name does it i don't think so does mm. get a girlfriend <laughs> oh yeah he does and they have babies <laughs> <laughs> oh he, he has a very heavy accent when you're reading it he does I, I've got to admit I skimmed over a lot of his dialogue a lot of the time it's very hard like not all of his dialogue is that important yeah it's more just to show the interaction so yeah I, I I got to admit I didn't try to decipher everything he said it was just you just got the impression that he was talking to Mary and that was you know it was just more about showing the connection than anything else but yeah and so through this then she starts exploring the moors and the because it's 
in my mind, the way it's laid out, like you have the fields around the estate, and then there's all these little walled up kitchen gardens, essentially, for the kitchen to grow things and to feed them through. And so she sort of explores those grounds and she develops a little more of a healthy disposition. She's a little, yes, yellow. Yes, fat. She starts getting yes. fat. Yeah, which, even all that uh, porridge. <laughs> I'm all for fat positivity in, in, in children's literature. <laughs> but it's so telling of the times where yeah. I'm just like, wow, if that, if that was nowadays that would that would be so you couldn't oh I love the fact that do you know what it really makes me yearn for those times where people understood that that being you know incredibly thin is not a good thing um this is you know especially with young children that that you want to have like a healthy weight and a healthy amount of I don't know chub to you in some sense like you don't want to be a, a skinny and I suppose that comes a lot with poverty and child poverty and in those days you know the th- very thin thin weak children were the ones who weren't eating and were incredibly poor and so if you were a slightly more you know chubby child um, and yeah. a little bit more puppy fat on you then you were more likely to live and survive and 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 probably had a bit more wealth so I love the fact that they say fat and everyone's so happy she's getting fat <laughs> yay and I know they mean in terms yeah. of like a little bit of meat on the bones I know yeah. they don't mean like fat fat but at the same time my little overweight heart is just like oh yay <laughs> and we find out about she spots the secret garden after this so we see the robins she's flitting into the secret garden and uh so she finds it I forget who tells her that the key was buried uh 10 years ago when is it Martha I think I Martha might have spilled it. She's such a loose lips, Martha. She can't oh. keep a secret. <laughs> yeah, no, Martha's, Martha's all over the place. She can't keep a Oh, secret. yeah. So it's Martha who tells her that it's because his wife died when she fell off a tree in the garden. Very common way to die, falling off a tree. <laughs> I know. I'm sitting on a branch. I mean, how high up was she that she fell? I mean, in all seriousness, what they don't say is that there's falling off a tree and there's falling off a tree and hitting your head or breaking yeah. your neck like that. So, I mean, they, and I actually think that they don't say that in the book. They have it as falling out of a tree, which when you're reading it as a very young child, you're like, oh, maybe this is a way to die. Or <laughs> then you're reading it as an adult and you realize that all they're actually saying is there was a catastrophic injury involved in that. Because yeah, I certainly <laughs> climbed trees in my youth and fell from a few of them and it was fine. <laughs> Which film is it that makes out that she fell from the swing and the swing broke and that was how she died? No, it's the new one and it was wait, it was the new one and it's because she had a disease and wanted to die on the swing. That I think the impression in the original film is that the swing broke. Yes, that's what it is. And, the swing broke. And then she and literally like poof. And then that's when she died. Like, well, I guess she broke. was eating too much too then. <laughs> It's it's a funny. I yeah. I don't think either of the films <laughs> coped with that very well. But yeah. I certainly got an impression as a kid that climbing trees was dangerous, and then an impression of an adult reading it that there was some neck injury. Or maybe the second film, maybe the really more recent film, has got it right in that maybe it's meant to be some sort of cover for something more catastrophic or a symbolic like yeah. her falling out the tree is a symbolic reason why she died and it might not be the real reason that's probably the only one of the few things I don't like the way the new film did it but no. it might be one of the few 
being I forgive on the film for elaborating because there is room to elaborate yes, on that. It's though. very vague. They never in the book at all really clarify how it happened. And I, I don't know if it's totally necessary. It's just that it was tragic and it happened suddenly, really. Can I point out something here that um, really took me a while to get my head around, longer than it should have to get my head around. But in the book, Mary's parents are um, the like the Mary's dad is the brother of the of Colin's mom. So it's so in in okay. So in the films, yeah, the the women are sisters. Yes, they're twins. Yeah, they're twins. In the book, they're not at all. And and it's Mary's father that's yeah. the brother of the of the wife. And I, I actually, again, that is a change I like because it is more potent from a, like a fiction point of view. It's more mm-hmm. symbolic. Um, but it's really interesting how both films decided to go for that change. And um, and that Francis did not choose to do that. That Francis wanted to make sure she kept it very separate. So what both the films do is somehow make this much more symbolic and important whereas that's not what was important to Frances Hodgson Burnett she was just like oh no they're just related like yeah. she didn't want to delve too far into the symbolism of that relationship she was because just I also not- think for Frances it seemed you know unlike in the films it's not about the adults yeah. <laughs> really not that. <laughs> no one cares about their that. relationships are not important it's about these children figuring out how to take care of themselves yep it absolutely is and yeah oh gosh it's so, an interesting change though it's a, yes probably a good change <laughs> yeah that's true I can and I can see how filmically it would tie things together a little bit nicely a little more dramatic so then Mary hears for the first time what she thinks is a child crying when she, at, at night and then Martha just says it's the wind um and she explores the house and she hears the child crying again so you're sort of start to be haunted and Mrs. Medlock denies all of this. And then a few days later, we hear about Dickon. <laughs> Who did not have a crush on, on Dickon? Dickon is the best. Dickon is the best. Dickon can talk to animals. Has a crow called Soot who sits on his shoulder. Has What's lambs that? and foxes. The lamb, he had a fox for me as well? There's a fox, there's a lamb, there's a pony. Um, <laughs> the crow called Soot. Um, it's just... A magical boy like it's a it's I don't know if I mean I was I'm, I'm straight so maybe it's a straight girl thing but this idea of a magical boy it's a Peter Pan thing it's a you know someone who will rescue it's a very there's a rescue fantasy in there there's a sense of this is someone who's safe this is the this is a wizard this is someone who is is wise and understands the world in a way I don't understand and is cute as hell as well and oh my god, she gets such a crush on him so quickly in the book. Like she Who is wouldn't? Like, Hello. <laughs> he is, but he is like perfect. Like you did not have teen pop idols when in this era. You had boys <laughs> with lambs. Yeah. <laughs> who wandered the moors with foxes and crows. And it's like a boy oh, version of Heidi or something. <laughs> yeah, he's I'm trying to think of like a really kind of modern like interpretation of him like the magical boy um I sp- do you know what oh my god I'm gonna say it I'm gonna say it and you're gonna hate me what? so it's very much paranormal romance the normal girl yeah. Edward Cullen because he's mysterious uh, and yes, it is. yeah I take but maybe not Edward yeah. Cullen but it's that but it's that same trope yeah. it's that same idea of the magical boy who you have to investigate and there's the tension he's of mysterious. 
you like me and I'm the I'm just the ordinary girl but he's a special boy and Mm -hmm. it is such a common trope of 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 teen certainly of the the paranormal romance era in YA uh, from a few years back um very very common trope and I feel like this is maybe the the root of that trope right here in Dickon this is why it's good to talk to you about this because I would not have made that connection. <laughs> it's it's true. I honestly think it's true. It's, it's I, I I really see it. I, I read it as I was reading it. I was just like, he is he is perfect boyfriend material. He's perfect magical boyfriend material. Yep. And it's never quite clear in the book whether he is magic or not. But you can read him into being magic. If you choose to read Dickon as actually being magic and can actually talk to animals, you can read it that way. Likewise, if you're a far more practical person reading this book, you can also read it as as him just being very good with animals and just very naturally talented at understanding these things, which is also very plausible. Um, I think I was much I was kind of inclined to sit in the middle. I was just like, I want him to be able to talk to animals, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like that she does. There are certain sections that she definitely, I think specifically leaves it open to how you want to interpret that. I think especially with the relationships of Colin, uh, Dickon and Mary as well, who's, yeah. you know, romancing who. <laughs> yeah. There is this a, tri- oh, there's a triangle. It is Twilight. Oh my god, no! Is this the precursor to Twilight? In there, you have this, you have the, you know, Cassandra Clare incesty thing going on too. Oh, I'm doing, oh god, this is a dissertation we're going to have in my thesis. <laughs> and I have a feeling all those authors would have read this book and they're probably unintentionally influenced by it. Of course they would have done, absolutely. Like, so, yeah. After this, uh, the robin guides her to buried key. This is definite, definite magic. This ro- no bird is fi- finding a key for me in real life. <laughs> Again, it could just be coincidence that this bird is just landing on this thing at this time, and Mary is interpreting those signs in that way, and happens. And it's just a series of coincidences because she's a very lonely child who is wandering around gardens all day and happens to find it, and happens to find it at the same time that a robin is there, or the robin is magical and is actually talking to her and this is all part of fate and i love that either of those eventualities are completely plausible in the way the book is written it and could be- a great director or screenplay writer could write one of those interesting options but they don't seem to want to <laughs> <laughs> Then I love this next. You threw away the Robin altogether in this. In this. <laughs> yeah, barely there. <laughs> CGI Robin at the beginning. Cue me going, oh, a Robin, and then that it's being gone. It. It's all yeah, about gone, the gone. dog, not the Robin. Oh, no. oh my god, I've forgotten about the dog briefly. <laughs> we'll get to the dog. Wait, save, save it. So the I love this next section. I find it just so delicious and enchanting. And it's when it's a section about Martha and her family. So talking about her 12 siblings and how they live in this tiny cottage and describing her mother and how amazing her mother is. And then there's the bit with the money about her mother giving using her like last pence and getting Mary the jump rope it's it's a bit it's it made me uncomfortable reading it as a grown-up because these are obviously an incredibly poor family Mm -hmm. and 
but again I mean Martha as a character is obviously very cheerful and and, and wonderful in that sense but there's this sense of the happy poor mm-hmm. that um and and that everything is fine and they are and they are des- obviously destitute and struggling um and their children are all in work apart from Dickon who just wanders around the moors with his animals um but they are obviously but yet they are thriving and happy and everything is fine mm-hmm. and it's probably a bit of a flaw on Frances Hodgson's Burnett's part and she grew up poor she grew up yeah. not destitute but she grew up in you know having you know certainly not in the upper classes and had to, and when I believe she moved to America they were very very poor and you get the sense that she knows what it's like to be poor yeah. and she understands that and she understands how, how, how much of a struggle it is and how awful it can be and yet she wrote a very happy I mean again it's a children's maybe it's because it's a children's story she this is not the place for social commentary but it did really strike me as as lovely as this family sounds and it sounds idyllic it sounds like the kind of things you do think about in fairy tales when you're a kid and you're thinking about how wonderful it would be to have a little cottage and and you know to I don't know all this kind of grow all your own vegetables and yeah it's all very cottage core but then when you're reading when you're really thinking about it she has what 12 kids and she's kind of on her own and you're like how does this actually work work? because and how are they so happy and how is Martha so happy because it just doesn't ring true in 1911 you know very strange but again I mean I think it's meant to be juxtaposed against the Craven family and how miserable they are but they have everything because because later on you have that conversation with the money and her Mary giving Martha the money to buy seeds and things that is true maybe there is something to be said for you don't need all this wealth that you can be happy when you are poor I just it's very simplistic yes and then, but it's the children's story. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's probably the flaw in sort of reading it as an adult versus, yeah. you know, this is meant to, you know, you don't want to talk down to children, obviously, but adding in the layer of uh, class and the economy in that period. I mean, it could do probably a better job of it. But, but when we're looking at adaptations, it is something that could be tackled there and hasn't been. No, I don't think <laughs> I either really discuss it. Um, no. So then we get the garden. So when she's out, she finds a secret garden and she goes inside and it's completely overgrown, but still completely enchanting. And she finds these tiny buds sort of struggling to grow out in the old rose bushes. And then this is the scene where she asks Martha about getting some gardening tools and seeds and giving her the money. And then Martha's saying she'll get Dickon to bring some seeds for her. (sighs) Yeah, I can't do anything but just sigh. Honestly, the the first, I'd say the first third to half of this book is just pure delight and discovery. Yeah. It's just pure, you, you are on the adventure with Mary and these things that she does are so simple. Having a skipping rope, getting a few garden tools, a few seeds. It's so simple and yet it is so fulfilling and magical to read, even as a grown-up. And it's, it's, the delight in watching her come alive and grow interested and I can't remember where it is in the book I, th- I think it's before she meets Dickens certainly um where she realizes that she has friends she has is it the Robin Martha ben. And, ben, 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 and she there's one phrase that really stuck out for me and almost like really kind of made me quite emotional this she's counting she has so few friends yeah. she counts who she has and also who has her 
mm-hmm. and she's she's at such a point in her life where she has so little in terms of human connection that she can count on one hand who has her as a friend and who she has as a friend but it's more than she had before yeah. and you get the sense of she's learning and she's like oh this is a friendship this is what this is and it's so beautiful to watch that happen in in the book it really it's 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 so it's quaint and it's small and the stakes are very very low it's but it's a it makes the book so beautiful to read to watch her come alive like that well it just and i i literally wrote this uh phrase on a sticky note it's about cultivating happiness yes and it's quite literal in the book because she's cultivating a garden but that is her happiness and that's what it's meant to represent like you can work to be happy it's not magic you don't snap your fingers and you're happy which we're going to come back to (laughs) you have to work at it but she does it as well no one does it for her like I think one of the most horrific things for me and I do remember this as you know encountering the story as a child perhaps more so from the film than I did from the book was when she's given the scripting rope and and is just told to just go and to come back later Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wait, what is she's 10 years old? Like she, they're just sending her out into the garden and just telling her to come back. And I remember thinking as a kid, like, what do you do all day? And I'm a book kid. So yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an indoorsy kid. I like my arts, my books, my TV. And I'm, just, I'm literally just watching this going, that to me is horrific. Like they're just sending her outside with a skipping rope and nothing else with no people to talk to, with nothing with her apart from her little little bit of food you know a few sandwiches to go with her whatever it is and I'm just like that to me was so disturbing Mm -hmm. but she then decides to keep moving and to keep going and to find things and to discover things and to cultivate things and she is the one no one no one does it to her she is completely self-sufficient in that sense and it's it's really inspirational I loved when she's describing sort of moving away the sort of dead leaves and stuff and allowing the buds to kind of rise, you know, have a little bit of uh, dirt around them so they can grow. And she's just kind of figuring it out herself. Oh, I was just like, I wanted to go into the garden after that. I was like, oh, I want to make things grow. It's wonderful. It's really, really, really wonderful. It's, it's a, it's a, it's real magic. Like apart yeah. from that, you know, from, from, the, from any other kind of magic that happens, that is actual magic. And it's the magic that George talked about, like, like that Colin picks up on and blows out of proportion, but it yeah. is magic. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is something. And yeah, it's it, the first half of this book is so full of that kind of discovery, gentle discoveries that, teach you like a self-help book it would as an adult I suppose mm-hmm. just how to kind of keep moving to keep going and to and to find joy and pleasure in in things that are undiscovered in secret and um yeah I I must say I I whipped through the first half of the book the second half of the book is a little bit more kind of yeah now she's covered everything so there's less yeah. there's less momentum and I think the films both struggle with that as well yeah um but yeah, go on. What's the next? What's next in the story? So then we get to meet Dickon in person. Oh. Uh, she and she's like fantasizing about Dickon, like some you know crush, you know, up until this she, point, and it's like, ah, oh, Dickon. <laughs> she really fancies him, and yeah. but why, why wouldn't she? And she has no. every right to, and she is right to. <laughs> like, is he gonna like me? Will he like me? <laughs> So he's brought her the seeds for the garden and he's like quite, you know, they bond. He's impressed at what she's been doing in the garden so far. And he's like, 
oh, well, I can teach you and help you. Oh, and she's like so excited. We can work together and build this garden. And it's like, yeah, working together with other people and creating beautiful things. What a great life lesson. Oh, it's just, he's so cool as well. I like the fact that he's not, again, you know, if we think of like the modern era and toxic masculinity and lads, 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 like Dickon is, is obviously a boy. He's very boyish but he doesn't shy away from feelings Mm -hmm. and he doesn't, he's just very honest with her in his own way, in his dialect, with his own words, not in plain speak as such, but it's very clear that he doesn't mind that, that Mary likes him and he wants Mary to know that he likes her too. Not in that sense, but in, in a friendship sense, certainly. And I just, I, 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 even as I was reading as an adult, I was scared that Dickon would get a little bit put off by this strange needy little girl who's, who doesn't know anything. And instead he's just like, no, we can be friends. It's all cool. Like he's just two years older than her. Yeah. He's, he's a cool, he's a cool boy, but he's also really safe and friendly and, and, and doesn't dismiss her. And it's just, that is a wonderful lesson too, to have a boy that you like still want to be around you, even though they, know that you like him like I don't know it's just something yeah. I'm like oh Mary I'm like I'm like Mary don't don't put all your cards down on the table just yet you know be be cool be chill don't yeah. you know just kind of and she is obviously she is a very chilly girl anyway yeah. but in her own way like it's 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 I think it's yeah I love their bonds I love I really love it and whether or not you want to read it as romantic they're they're both kids yeah. so I don't think it's necessarily safe no. to read it as as completely romantic but certainly you're meant to have a girl crush on him and it's clear that Mary has a a romantic crush on him even though she would never act on it yeah I mean she's 10 I hope not crushes at 10 (laughs) yeah but it's sort of it's sort of I don't know what you would I mean yeah I had crushes when I was a little kid but like what that means in the sense of what you do with that crush nothing would be no no this is pure innocence this is this is is innocent it's 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 a romantic innocence yeah it's definitely romantic, but it's not grown-up romantic. It is child romantic. Um, it, it is very. It's a very safe kind of. But it's. But it's. It is clear that you're meant to understand. And I think again, both the films pick up on it as well to an extent that that there is intention there. That there is a sense of the romance of it is when they get older, they will yeah. fall in They'll love. Get it on. <laughs> it's kind of that's the. I feel like that is there. Yeah, you, you know it's going to happen in a few years time beyond the scope of the book but this is the start of it so she goes home she's super excited about this she tells Martha about me Dickin, and then she has her <laughs> your brother's gonna be hot <laughs> I know and I think I feel like there's a little bit of like Martha knows that uh Mary has a little crush on her brother and she's sort of like you know rolling her eyes and yeah because I think Martha, funny. Martha has heard it before Martha's yeah. like yeah you're not the only one love <laughs> All the girls love Dickens. Exactly. He's a little heartbreaker. <laughs> they follow him around like okay. the foxes and the lambs and the yes. <laughs> We get our first meeting with Mr. Craven. And because uh, he's about to go off, wander the world. And uh, he's so he had an interaction with Martha and Dickens' mother uh, and who was had heard about Mary and is kind of worried about her. And he, Mr. Craven, though he's like a sad man and a bad father, he's mm-hmm. never unnecessarily cruel to Mary. Cause he asks her, what do you want? And she's like, I'm fine. I don't need any help. Like I can take care of myself. And he's like, okay. 
and she asks him, can I have a bit of earth? She says specifically, but she, can I have a bit of garden to just, you know, grow stuff and play around with? And he's like, sure, whatever, do what you want. I can't really be bothered. You seem happy and fine. She's used to that though. That's yeah. to her normal adult relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, of course he has no, like, why would he have any feeling? Like she, he isn't, he isn't even her blood relative. He's yeah. she's just somebody else he's had to take in because the poor wretch hasn't got anybody else. Like yeah. he doesn't and you know, he doesn't really care. He doesn't have to look after the house. He doesn't have to do anything. He's got servants to do everything for him. He's just there to pay the wages. Um, he's doing this out of obligation and he I, this is the kind of relationship that Mary's used to mm-hmm. this is this is this is what she got from her parents presumably so yeah. to her this is normal yeah and I feel like they have a quite the way she converses with him is quite adult like she mm-hmm. knows to talk to him he's not like to be very straight with him there's no like please mister give me she doesn't beg she's quite you know she's she's used to this she's yeah. this is I can you can imagine her having conversations with her parents on the rare chart on the rare times her parents were there it's just like how are you I am fine mother thank you (laughs) like I feel like there's this is how she knows how to communicate with people and it suits you know Mr Craven really well because he has no social skills either I know they're both awkward (laughs) yeah he's 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 a he's a lost puppy with no idea what to do what to say but but thankfully very reasonable man um well certainly when it comes to mary not necessarily so with his son um but um he's you know he's maybe he also doesn't want to get close to her he's he's someone who is very emotionally guarded but then all the characters in this well all the main characters in this are martha yeah (laughs) martha and dickon martha and dickon like again they're just like this is the moors are my home um yeah but yeah he's I feel like they're kindred in that sense. They've both been scarred by losing people. They and yeah. and you know I think Martha and Mr. Craven, are, uh, Mary, sorry, and, and Mr. Craven are probably very very similar people. Yeah, that's true. I think that's you know very good to note because I think in maybe both the portrayals, I I feel like they portray him as a little more cruel than he needs to be, to her anyway. Their relationship. To her, I think so. I mean, the first film went for the proper gothic thing. Yeah. I mean. He was a very he, odd he, casting choice, I think. He is something to look at. He yeah, looks like he looks like a dandy from the Jacobean era. Like he, if you could, for people who reminds me of um, Tom Cruise in the what's the vampire movie? Yes, he's left that from yeah. yeah he, he is he is from Interview with a Vampire. Yes, I imagine him as like someone maybe like in the King Charles era in in English society, like very yeah just he's he's it's very bizarre I don't know if it's much about casting but certainly styling is very bizarre he is he's very I think he's meant to be very Byronic um mm-hmm. gothic hero yeah. like he looks like yeah a gothic hero he's he is, it's strangely compelling when you're <laughs> watching this and you're like Mr Craven um <laughs> he's 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 very um he's with the hair like glossy flowing hair very yeah he's it's very like that whereas then you have um possibly the coldest Colin Firth performance of his career um (laughs) and he just he looks like a man who has been transported down to earth and does not understand how humans work 
um, and does not understand that he has any obligations or any and he, he just does, does not he's like people what are people like they, they feel things um he's it's very very strange performance from Colin Firth and a very strange decision I think to to portray him that way because I think if there's one thing fundamental to the story it's that yes adults can be terrible but also adults are just people yeah. and to, and I think the first film I think understands that a little bit more that the father is terrible but he's also people and he is yeah. also he, he's haunted and he's traumatized and he's and I think more in the first film you really understand this the sense that the father is very very scared yeah he is terrified the reason he stays away is is because he is terrified of being anywhere near the house or being anywhere near his son and he's and again I've met people like this instead of dealing with it and confronting with it they just run away from it mm-hmm. and you get that and Colin Firth though I don't know what he's doing he's just hanging around the place who knows (laughs) so then we get to meet Colin so she decides to go explore and we meet Colin Craven and he he says to her very matter-of-factly my father does not want to be around me because I remind him of my mother I'm going to die because he's here (laughs) because but it is I you know I love this conversation because I love how he sort of mirrors Mary in sort of how much of a spoiled brat he is as he's talking to her. And she's even like, Ugh, this kid, um, and sort of how he wants everything under his command. And, you know, him saying that the servants will do whatever he says and things like that. Oh, he's, oh, Colin, he's very... He, he hasn't got much of a personality but then I feel like that's actually true to who he is because mm-hmm. he hasn't ever had a chance to have a personality yeah and I feel like when when Mary sees him for the first time meets him she's like oh this is what I was like yeah exactly <laughs> she realizes oh, get it now this is why no one likes me because you know I you know I it was it, she sees herself in him yeah and um and and but he is he is atrocious but then but then also again it's that sympathy it's that sense of and this is something Frances Hodgson Bennett does so well again with Mary you know the reason she is the way she is is because she's been neglected with Colin as well he is awful and terrible but you understand him completely because he is a boy who's been told he's going to die his whole life of course he'd be like that like there's no other option for him in yeah. the kind of way he's been brought up so it's that it, she manages it a second time in the book where you hate a character you feel the character is terrible but you mm-hmm. can't hate them <laughs> you can't You're doing everyone's just doing their best with the circumstances they're given yeah and I think that's important that uh Burnett is trying to talk about but so then Colin is like, oh, I have, I don't think he's ever seen someone his age. So he's like, I want to hang out with you more. And he orders that she comes every day to see him. And everyone's sort of shocked by this because he's literally never been nice to anyone else. And then there's this tiny little storyline, which is not super crucial to the, the book, but there's Dr. Craven who looks after him, who's uh, Mr. Craven's cousin who would inherit the estate if uh Colin dies and there's a little bit of alluding to the fact that he's keeping him bedridden because it benefits him yeah does someone say Munchausen's by proxy well that's what I was thinking it's like who has the Munchausen's by proxy the doctor the father I mean it's a little bit 
it's, it probably technically isn't Munchausen's by proxy no. they're not um in, in from what I know about that disease which I as far as I know isn't a disease that has a definite definition anyway but yeah. um certainly they both have a vested in well I don't think I don't think his father has a vested interest in keeping him ill. I think his father is just terrified and is believing everything. But mm-hmm. yes, does the doctor have a vested interest in enabling the father's fears and also enabling his own potential and therefore keeping? And then I think that, again, the Colin is what, 10 is also 10. So there's yeah. a sense of it's been 10 years and this and your muscles, as someone who suffers from chronic illness, who has a lot of problem with muscle deterioration and deconditioning, like, it just, it does have, if you're in bed for 10 years, yeah, you are going to be ill all the time. Like you cannot move. You'll get out of bed and just get out of breath and then you go back to bed again and everyone will panic for you because, and and that is, it becomes normal. Like if you do that to your body over 10 years and that will, you will be ill. Like, and that's what's happened. Um, So at least at the minimum have a vitamin D deficiency. (laughs) Oh God, yeah. It's, it's a it's it's really sad i don't think it's anyone wanting to keep no. him ill i think it's more that everyone is scared no one knows what they're doing because it's 1911 and they don't understand these things yet um and and, and then colin genuinely being very 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 weak um and not really understanding it and everyone him, him being an absolute terror in that house yeah <laughs> why do you think they wanted to keep him secret from mary so much that is a question I was thinking about. Like, what is the big deal? Why wouldn't Mr. Craven introduce the two of them? But maybe he's so ashamed of the situation with his son. Like, he can't even talk about him to anyone, really. But the fact that, Ms. yeah, I don't know that Mrs. Medlock also wouldn't say anything. I mean, there's the... I, I, I mean, I suppose they, they could scared she could bring viruses, she could bring illness to him yeah. or something like that. Um, and you know, she, and got, she would upset him. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they're not pleasant kids. It's not as if Mary's yeah. a ray of sunshine that's walked in at the beginning. They're like, oh, yeah. it should be great. Um, but it's, it, it, it's the one thing. I feel like the main reason for keeping them separate for this long is, to, is, is, is not because of any specific reason other than to keep the tension in the novel and mm. to facilitate this whole kind of gothic romance thing and I don't mean romance in the sense of like romantic romance yeah. proper like gothic high romance where you know there is haunted houses and I mean the novel verges on horror in so many well the, hearing the shrill cry through the night yeah. when she's wandering the halls is very yeah exactly so I, I feel like that it's more for that than it is because there's a real distinct reason which I think in the kind of novel that this is in 1911 that's fine like <laughs> <laughs> She can do it. So yeah. they start developing a bond over this, and then she decides to talk to Dickon about Colin. And they decide, oh, we should bring Colin to the garden. That will make him feel better. Like they are thinking about this boy's really sad. We need to do something to help him, which is the first time Mary's really been altruistic and sort of like, I want to do something for someone else besides myself. I wonder how much there is of impressing Dickon a little bit in that like she's certainly inspired by him and his ability to just make friends and to talk to her about friendship and all his animals and I I think there's a little bit of 
I don't know. I, I I just I'm just remembering being kid, and I'm remembering some of the 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 way social dynamics would work. And I I do feel like there's there's a little bit of a sense of wanting to prove you're better than Colin. So she's like, yeah. I will because I have done this for myself, and I'm going to teach you. But I think there's also a dynamic in that interaction with Dickin and her wanting to prove to Dickin that she is capable of of caring for somebody else as well, and yeah. and adding to her friend tally um, a little bit. Um, she keeps Colin at arm's length, though, in terms of bringing him into the secret. That's which true. Is also very compelling. So she, but it's also like, sort of like Colin is not a great kid. I I, no. I understand not trusting him. <laughs> but there's not trusting him, and there's also, and again, this maybe this is me reading into it. There's also maybe a little bit of Mary wanting to keep it just her and Dick in yeah, the garden. I know she doesn't want another and, boy yeah, there. It's like, oh god, another boy, and also because he is so domineering and. Yeah especially of her and I do wonder I, I'm just again I'm imagining being a kid and just being like I just like it being me and Dickon in the garden mm-hmm. I don't know the guy in like but also I want to impress Dickon and show him that I can do this and also you know I don't know there's I think there's so many psychological factors at play in that dynamic again it's something that that is balanced so brilliantly in the writing mm-hmm. but it's also it is sort of a lesson to learn as a child like just keeping secrets and not including th- people and things because there's a lot of that as a kid not being included and how much that hurts other people's feelings and then you see that specifically with Colin because after this she goes off and she's with Dickon alone and doesn't bring Colin and he throws a tantrum and freaks out and she goes in she yells at him they have this huge blowout and he realizes he can't act like that and Oh, then there's also the revelation where she <laughs> forces his shirt off. It's like, you don't have a love. You're fine. You can get up. <laughs> pin. Yeah, yeah. even as big as a pin. <laughs> I just, oh, bless her. I, it's not good on Mary. It's, 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 it's a strange thing. It's a strange, it's something that I think it's a behavior that wouldn't happen mm-hmm. nowadays with, with, you know, and again, it's something that's, I don't is it in I don't think it's in the second film, but it's definitely in the first film. And I remember it being a very odd moment in the first film where she's suddenly taking off his clothes yeah. and touching his back. And it, it felt very strange to watch. Um, but then again, it's the era, it's what it is, and yeah. it needed to be done because there needs to be that proof that there's nothing wrong with him. And Mary needs to see it for herself and be the one to tell him there's nothing wrong with him. Because also for a child, it is like seeing something specific it's not like in here you have to see on the body your body looks fine you can get up I think that has to kind of happen between the two of them like her confronting him to a certain degree and that's important because also she's kind of realizing I think at the same time that that behavior is not acceptable to throw tantrums when you don't get your way like oh I you know because I think there's a little bit in the dialogue in her sort of mental dialogue of reflecting like about herself like it's not okay that I acted that way either so she needs to tell him this is unacceptable I also feel like she knows that on one level but she doesn't really know it until she sees Colin behaving that way Mm -hmm. like she has to he has to like it's again it's it's her growth happens through him as well They, they they grow through each other and if Colin hadn't have been there and it wasn't behaving that way would we have got all the growth that Mary has? Maybe not as quickly. Like yeah. they are, they all are helping each other to realize who they are and what they need and 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 how to be better people. 
So then she uh, goes to get Dickon the next day, and they decide that they need to bring Colin to the garden. And they, so she ends up, I think she talks to Dr. Craven and Colin and says that they'll, um, they're going to bring Colin to the garden, but no one can be there to see where they're going. It's a secret. And Colin orders them as well. And then Dickon comes inside the house with his little army of animals. <laughs> oh, that was the most magical thing when I, in, in, being a kid, this idea, of, and again, it was a kid who had chronic fatigue syndrome and was ill and off school quite a lot and didn't have many friends. This idea of like a magical boy just arriving with all his animals, like a petting zoo, like therapy animals. And it's like, it's magic. It's what you want. Like, you know, I'm just making a list of things that girls don't want boys. They only want magical boys and keys and robins. And like, it's just, it's, it's like, like a Disney movie I'm, before a Disney movie. Yeah, it's just, it's just bringing the magic inside. It's making it real in a sense where maybe it, it, it always was real, but maybe also not quite real until it actually happens inside a house. Like bringing the outside in in that way, it's, sub- it's subverting the laws of, of, of nature in, in a strange sense of all these kind of wild animals just coming into the house and being welcome there. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful moment. <laughs> it's so cool. It's therapy dogs, but therapy pets. I wonder if that existed when that was written, because obviously it's a thing now. I've been hospitalized before, and I rem- as a kid, and I remember them bringing like dogs into the hospital, the children's hospital ward, for the kids to like snuggle yeah. and play with. Fran- I don't know. Maybe Francis Hutchinson invented it. I don't. Yeah. Know. But it always just struck me as the coolest thing. The only thing I can compare it to, because it's just something I've encountered recently um, in um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, when Lyra goes to our Oxford, mm-hmm. it's that same. I get that same flavour of some sort of unnatural law being broken, of something that's not meant to be there being here and it being awesome. Like, I feel like it's that. And I feel like Dickon coming in with the animals is that same sense of, this isn't meant to happen and it's so cool. It's just, it gives me that same flavor. And I love that. I love it. I'm glad you mentioned his dark materials because that is going to be a conversation point when we get to the film, but I'm not going to tell you Ah! why. (laughs) So Wait, wait, is Dickon from Lyra's world? Are they his demon? Is the crow a demon? (laughs) I, I mean... Philip Pullman definitely read this book. Oh, you have to. I mean, if you do, if you know anything about children's literature, you, you know this book. Absolutely. Yes. There's way too much of this in his writing, I think. So we then they take him to the garden and he proclaims he will live forever and they must come to the garden every day. Gets a... Oh, God. Colin is going to get so disappointed by adulthood. <laughs> yeah. Like, he goes from one extreme to another. I'm going to die now and live for now. I'm never going to die. And it's just like, I think <laughs> even in the ending of the book, I'm like, chill out, Colin, please. I he's still he's still annoying at the end. He's so annoying. <laughs> he's also still a kid, and he's but you know what? He's also it makes me sad reading him because I feel like he's got very much got public schoolboy mentality about him where he really does feel like he's going to rule the world and you know what he probably is because he's going to go to Cambridge and he's going to be a MP and he's going to not I don't know I just feel like I get those vibes I get I get really yeah. kind of gosh 
privileged boy vibes for Colin, which I think is warranted. And it obviously meant something different in 1911 than it does now. But I do read it now and I'm just like, oh, Colin, for goodness sake. Like, just you're not going to be make a great scientist and make great discoveries. You're not going to all these things he wants to do. And I'm just like, he genuinely believes he can do all that because of his privilege. And, um, you know, either he will do all that, which, you know, he's got the wealth to do it, um, or he's just going to get severely disappointed. <laughs> but he can, he'll, he'll, he'll be able to walk at least. At least he's got that. He's got no, he's got no nothing <laughs> else. <laughs> so then we have this great little bit with Ben Weatherstaff being, fi- finding them out in the secret garden. And he's shocked and he's shocked to see Colin about. And, um, and then in anger to like Ben being like, oh, I thought you were this like monstrous child. Everyone told me you were singing. <laughs> you were this. Oh, ben. Uh, and then Colin was like, I'm not, I'm perfectly fine. And he gets up from his wheelchair for the first time and he walks, he kind of like steps uh, to Ben and. You know, it's a bit of a comedy sketch. It's just like, because all Colin was aware of was that people thought he had a hump on his back. Yeah. So he's like, I've not got a hump on my back. I've not got a hump on my back. And then Colin, and then Ben Weatherstaff comes over the wall and goes, I thought you were had crippled legs. And he's like, what? I didn't even know people thought that. <laughs> like, what? What? Who said that? Who said yeah. that? It's, it's actually quite comedic in a strange sense that he, <laughs> Colin hadn't even thought of every single insult that people yeah. had for him. <laughs> He's just like in such a bubble. So he's completely enraged that anyone th- would think this of him. <laughs> and Ben gives us the story about how this was his mother's garden and he gives Colin a rose to plant in because it was used to be a rose garden. And just Ben is so sweet. That was such a nice gesture. I love the fact. And again, it's that whole thing I said at the beginning that Ben is really a good person and he's only mean to the people he likes because he's been tending that garden all along and he can be as cold and as prickly as he likes but we all know he's a softy. <laughs> so they there's a little bit of a thing with uh Colin ordering people about and Mary being like sitting him down very seriously and saying it is not acceptable to have this sort of rude behavior you cannot talk to people like this you are not better than them <laughs> and I love her like little scolding of him very so. merry merry <laughs> so they continue they spend every day in the garden and Colin states you know and they they're all getting healthier and happier and they're really enjoying themselves and Colin's like this is magic and I'm gonna study this one day and become a scientist and study magic <laughs> And then they get into a circle and they start chanting about magic. <laughs> I, it's this is where the novel falls starts to start veering in a and, weird direction. Yeah, and 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 I skipped quite a lot when my reread because I just think a lot of it isn't plot necessary. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff happening that just doesn't actually do anything or mean anything. I feel like all the meaningful stuff has already happened in the book earlier on. Um, and yeah, Colin, it, the thing is, there's it's kind of right. The magic, it's true. Like, and there's 
the mag it, it's whether you i mean essentially francis hodgson burnett wrote the secret like in 1911 <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we and you know and noel edmonds and all his kind of you know stuff that he believes in in you know asking the universe it's just like it is the same thing and you can call it religion and you can call it the secret and you can call it magic um wish fulfillment um self-fulfilling prophecies all these kind of modern self-help things that we have today it's none of it's new it's mm-hmm. just marketed in a new way and Frances Hodgson Burnett being someone who's very keenly aware of psychology as we've already seen with these characters knew this too that you just have to believe in something and you can make something happen through willpower and if you want to call that magic you can call it magic what I tend to call it myself is good decisions and hard work but it's essentially to other people it might look like magic I mean certainly you know getting myself together to write novels and to get that going and a lot of people look on that and go how how have you done that it's magical but no it's good decisions and hard work yeah and but you can also call it well I you know I I wanted to write novels ever since I was a kid and now I am yes it's like self-fulfilling prophecies but as Mary is showing through hard work of cultivating the garden, it doesn't just happen. And as Colin is showing through his experiments and practice and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't just happen. You have to put in the hard work and make the good decisions to make it happen. If you want to call that magic, go for it. If you want to call it religion and prayer, go for it. <laughs> but the nub of it is, is, is the same, I feel. Oh, because the next scene you have um, where you have Dickens' mother comes and she sort of makes food for them and they chant again and Dickens decides to sing um, doxology, which is like a hymn praising God and they all sit around in a circle and they chant this hymn. But so in doing a little bit, because I was, I'm not a big fan of like shoving religion into children's stories because I had like a babysitter who unbeknownst to my parents was reading me bible stories even though I was a child of Jewish parents (laughs) so ever since like those very strong memories of like someone trying to get me into the bible I'm sort of like (laughs) someone who people have tried to save myself you know you know people will try and save us and you know and as I've been told by those people we should consider that blessings that they want us in heaven with them but no yeah so just in (laughs) the framework of children's works I'm sort of a little averse to it but in doing a little bit of research so Burnett when she's quite late in life because this was written towards the latter half of her career she started learning about Christian science and this was influenced by that because Christian science is, you know, very much about spirituality and nature and that evil, such as disease and death is an illusion and that you can work past that. And obviously, like, Secret Garden is about, like, healing and the power of nature and the idea that prayer heals instead of medical science. So she, Burnett, towards um, the latter half of her life, had a really bad nervous breakdown and dealt with depression and anxiety and medical science could not help her. But, but also medical science for women at that point was atrocious. She, she was able to find through studying Christian science and using those type of mental exercises and the power of nature to help her. That was sort of what she was trying to write about in The Secret Garden. And I can understand that. I can see it. I, you can, like, 
I think one of the beauties of this being of this book and one of the reasons it's such a good book is that you can do readings with it mm-hmm. you can do pagan readings of this book and you can draw out certainly you can draw out real you know magical pagan mysticism through this book you can do a christian reading of this book and you can draw that out of it you could do an atheist reading of this book and you can still draw the same conclusions and it's still a great book yeah i think that is one of the really great things about it is that as i said before you could read dickin as a magical boy or you can read dickin as a very a boy who's just attuned with these things but essentially not magical um, you can choose to believe that it is actual science and just literally doing exercise that gets and eating better and, and getting out in the fresh air that does you better. Oh wait, I totally oh. forgot the little bit about um, Dickin finding someone who's like a athlete to give him physical exercises yes, that he, he can that. work with Colin to help like work him out. I was like, wow. <laughs> This is, you can do, the readings you can do in this book, if you want to take a Christian view of this book, you can, and that is valid, because there is prayer in this book, there, the magic that Colin describes, you can ascribe to God and religion, and prayer and religion in that sense, if you want to do the whole kind of, you know, boot camp kind of, you know, we're just going to yeah. get, just <laughs> and get that going, do that as well. You, so many ways to to read it and I'm so grateful for Frances Hodgson Burnett despite you know maybe not despite that's the wrong way to put it but she obviously had her beliefs and she put her view into it but she didn't exclude anyone in those views you can read it as you know we're Jewish girls <laughs> we're reading it and I you know we can it doesn't feel like a religious book no it has those moments in it but it never once feels like a religious book well, to quote Burnett, she said, symptoms and doctors are rubbish. Doctors don't know half as much as you do yourself if you are intelligent and self-controlled. Correct. Again, <laughs> a big point of view of privilege. What if you are not so, or not, I wouldn't say necessarily intelligent. What if you are ignorant? And what if you don't have the means to be able to have that self, you yes. know, that self-motivation and control? So a lot of what she's talking about, you can only accomplish if you have the privilege to look after those things yeah. but she is essentially right I, I'm as someone who's diagnosed autistic you, you, you start to realize that a a lot of the the names we ascribe to things don't really matter they matter in the sense of society has created a world where you need those labels in order to access support for those mm-hmm. things to help people understand you but essentially every person is unique and even if you have those labels everyone's going to experience those things in different ways and you have to treat the person as an individual and not as a label and then as an, as an and as a medical condition mm-hmm. and even through how they label these conditions they change every few years like they they just decide that this thing doesn't exist anymore and this thing has a new name and the labels don't matter and I feel like Frances Hodgson Burnett might have been getting at that in a sense that it, the doctors could try and put her in a box and label her and try and do something but that wouldn't have been the thing that treated her at that time. What she needed was someone to help her as an individual, no matter what that meant. And she recognized that. And I feel like more people need to recognize that, that labels are important because we exist in a society where we need those labels in order to get what we need. But ultimately we're all individuals and we all have individual needs. No, that's great. (laughs) And now to the last chapter section which is probably my least favorite of the 
bit of the book actually I, I don't love thing. this book like I said this book is it goes downhill towards the like there's a, there's a lot I, of... for, I, I totally blocked this out as well this ending I completely forgot about this <laughs> <laughs> it's through the point of view of Mr. Craven who's off you know traveling through these beautiful places in Europe and he's in this deep depression for the last 10 years and yeah. he suddenly on the mountains in Austria he has a glimmer of hope when like looking off into some landscape yeah. and then he has a dream that his um about from with his wife telling him to go to the garden and then yeah. he receives a letter from Dickens' mom telling him to come home. I don't know how she got him this letter in Austria. It's quite impressive. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's very much, from a writerly point of view, there's very much a sense of, oh, no, I've got this character in Europe and I've got these characters here and I need to wrap this up, <laughs> have to get this wrapped up as quickly as possible and still make it symbolic. I very much get a sense of a writer struggling to control the threads a bit at the end and her just kind of scrambling to sort it all out. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It's quite brief. He gets himself home. <laughs> yeah, he, he gets himself home. He goes to the garden. Colin bursts out into his father's arms and he takes no, him. No, 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 no. Better than that. Wait, no, better than that. They happen to be running a race at the time. Yeah. And Colin happens to win the race without realising his father is there watching the race. Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> it's more, it's like perfect glory moment. Yeah. It's like proper glory where oh, you know the bow is tied very nicely on the present at the end yeah. <laughs> uh and Colm takes him into the garden and he tells him everything about the magic and his friends and then they go back to the manor everyone is shocked and blown away to see them walking together up to the house and that's it lovely and if you know what a really nice touch is just as we had Dickon as a magical boy with his animals there's also this sense at the end that everyone sees Mary as a magical girl yes um she, she cured him she yeah she's the one that's brought all this in and again it reflects again on that sense of is Dickon really magic because everyone else probably sees Mary as magical but we know that it's not that it's there's, yeah. there's practicality there and um yeah it's but Dickon not. also came later it wasn't him who started the magic as well which I think is great and it's very important to like state the fact that she starts doing the gardening in the work like he comes after the fact he does he does he's is is Dickon really necessary for the plot mm, I think in learning to have meaningful friendship yes yeah he doesn't really make anything happen in no book. and I don't think he's supposed to because she needs to yeah. figure out how to make things happen for herself she I think he's there for her to learn to ask her, him and Martha are there for her to learn to ask, know when to ask for help and that's okay the reason I ask that is that I feel like when you are reading the book and when you're seeing certainly the first adaptation of the film mm -hmm. you see the three as a trio they are definitely yeah. together and they all have meaning and purpose I feel like Dickon loses that a lot in the new adaptation he is he he turns up a lot later mm -hmm. he doesn't really do much apart from save a dog um and, which again is not needed the glass again. saves a dog what are you talking about it's it it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, i feel like i i think uh, there are many reasons i was disappointed with it with the adaptation the new recent one but um i think one of them was the lack of 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 dickin needing to be there yeah and 
it there is a reason for that it's because he's not crucial to the development of the plot he's crucial for the development of the characters but not the development of the plot and i actually don't think the film managed to get either of those it's just like no one knows why he's there um but yeah it's a it's a lovely story and you get this sense for all of the characters in it that they're all moving on to incredible things and their lives are all going to get better and that's really lovely that you don't have this neat happy ending in terms of they don't actually say happily ever after Mm -hmm. um you know from a historical point of view you know that first of war is coming very soon (laughs) who knows what's going to happen um but you know but you get this sense of all these people's lives have been improved and everything's going to be good for them in some sense from now on Um, except they'll both be enlisted and probably not make it through the war yeah (laughs) there is i've got to say and i i've been trying to hunt this down there is a tv adaptation okay while ago which started and i have very vivid memories of this bit um the start of it it starts in the future it Mm -hmm. starts after the first world war we have grown-up mary coming back to the house okay and you have a grown-up colin who has been serving in the war and grown-up colin is played by none other than colin fur yes i did write that down it's 1986 that and they end up together and that's so creepy they're cousins and dickin has died in the war what and that happens and so it starts off so it's, it's a retelling of the secret garden yeah and but it's framed in as adults looking back on their childhood. Yeah. And I can't remember anything else about it, but I can, I, I've got vivid imagery of the opening of the series. I think it was a, like a two, three parter or something rather yeah. than it being a film. I've got vivid I, I, imagine, um, image of the series starting and Mary driving down the driveway in a car mm-hmm. down to Lake Manor and Colin greeting her there um and and it being very clear they're going to end up together by the end and it's it's a very strange i i it's you don't really hear much about that adaptation nowadays but yeah. i remember it being quite strange to see that all the characters as grown-ups and what became of them i think maybe because i was so upset by the idea of one mary ended up with colin when they're first cousins and two the fact that the most magical person there didn't survive like this idea that the war might have put a destroyed the magic destroyed the magic ended the childhood and they lost Dickin and and you know and and that made me immensely sad it was it's a horrible thing to think of but it's also horribly realistic no true of that time so there's been 17 adaptations in film and television of this amazing (laughs) I mean, the most famous is obviously the 1993 version, which we have been talking about. And I did rewatch it as well. And it's just so enchanting. It's not perfect, but it just captures the mood much more so. And we can sort of talk a little bit as we're talking about the different scenes, the differences. But um, so this new adaptation of The Secret Garden was released October 23rd on Sky and also in cinemas, select cinemas. And we are in the time of COVID. So... A lot of films that would have been in cinemas have adapted. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was directed by Mark Munden, who did The Third Day, National Treasure, Utopia, and Vanity Fair. Not anything that would nod to doing a children's film, but okay. They're all, I mean, they're all quite colourful, glossy films. They're, yeah. they're quite hot. They're quite commercial films let's yes. say but he's obviously considered perhaps a safe pair of hands in terms of dealing with you know colorful glossy yes. 
which is yeah. the vibe they're clearly going for. I this man is not allowed to touch any books. Jack Thorne adapted the film. He is the writer who adapted his dark materials for TV. Mm-hmm. He did Enola Holmes, which I did as an episode as well. Dirt Music, Radioactive, which I did an episode as well on. Awful. Uh, and The Aeronauts. He, he's not allowed to. He cannot touch a book. It is unacceptable. This man is not allowed to write any more screenplays. I have not seen any of those other films. A couple of them are on my list to watch, like The Aeronauts. I, maybe I don't want to watch The Aeronauts. Mm. It does. I feel like I know the whole film from the trailer um and um enola holmes i might watch at some point but purely for henry cavill reasons <laughs> and um it, i get i i did look through the imdb to see you know the screen who, who who wrote the screenplay and what happened there and i i i really hope i don't meet him one day and he'll remember but there's a blandness that's going on yeah in a lot of what he's adapting there's a lot of and I, I really hope it's more to do with making concessions to studios um, and 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 that kind of thing, right? Because I just feel like a lot of from just and again, this is going from reviews, right, and and just impressions rather than seeing these films. But I feel like there's a lot of quite sanitized storytelling that there isn't much daring in terms there's no of vision. Like there's no artistic vision. Yes. And having yes. done in depth two other of his adaptations yeah. there's literally no artistic vision whatsoever because i'm very happy to see something where you have your own vision and you pursue that and that's yeah. great i'm happy for those types of changes to be made but when it's just to be a better hollywood film yeah. no <laughs> i'm not if he was the one that decided in in his dark materials to take away the the, the one scene I think I, I had a lot of issues with, with the first series and um I haven't watched the second one yet I've watched the first one of the second series and you know it's it's fine it's not it's not kind of um knocking my socks off but it's fine um but the thing that I really got made me upset in the first film was one there weren't enough demons um and I just feel like they but that's I'm putting that down to budget rather yep. than anything else they are when they are there they're incredible um but also there's a there's a specific scene with uh, the boy who's been separated from his demon and they find him in the fisherman's hut mm-hmm. and um, oh yeah i do remember that yeah yeah and in the books he's clinging to a to a dead fish mm-hmm. and um and you realize it's because he's missing his demon so much and his soul has been cut away and so he's clinging to his dead fish and in the book it is such a visceral moment that you i i cried my eyes out i felt an existential dread like i've never felt in a long time reading Mm -hmm. that in a children's book and I remember that scene coming up in the tv show and my mum who has no awareness of the books she's like watching this going why have they all got animals what's going on I don't understand and I was like mum mum this episode this scene oh my god this is the moment where you just kind of feel something so profound and so powerful and you are so upset because you can't you really feel like you might know what it's like to lose your soul and then you get to that scene and it's not there and you're like wait what that's the most powerful moment of the first book where you as a child reading it and I read it as a teenager but Mm -hmm. certainly if you're a young person reading it that might be one of your first experiences of really kind of understanding mortality and understanding the sense of self beyond you as a person um on the planet and it's upsetting and it's meant to be upsetting because this is this is a series of books meant to teach you about life and death and and god and all that kind of stuff and they they just don't do it 
And my mum went, what was the big deal? I don't understand. And I was like, no, I must tell you. There's this whole thing. And oh my God. And I just was like, yeah. why leave out the most potent, emotionally potent part? And I feel like he's done that here as well. Yeah. He's he's taken out the most emotionally potent part of the secret garden, which is a sense of, you you said it lovely, of cultivating, Happiness. of growing, of, yeah. of of kind of of discovering something nearly dead and and watching it grow yeah. and develop and you growing developing with it to the point where you come alive and instead <laughs> magic it's just magic and i don't know i just i just does he not fundamentally understand what this book is about and why i don't think he understands what any books are about i mean radioactive which it's a graphic novel i don't know if you've ever read it I've not, no, I've, I've not read so it. It's a, not... it's a biography of Marie Curie and about her life. And it's just so captivating. And she's such a fascinating character. And this film, I said, they also change history, like a very famous story. And they, they you know, there's certain points you got to hit when you're telling a biography of someone. Especially a female scientist, one of the most profound and prominent and important female scientists of all yeah. time. No. Who, it's it's because she women you know young girls will be watching that morning i don't know i don't know i don't know i'm 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 what was doing how do these mediocre white men continue (laughs) to get jobs when they do such a bad job it is a perfect representation of hollywood of someone who repeatedly has done film adaptations that have awful reviews yet he still gets very high paid gigs yeah it's just and so I bizarre. Can, and I can forgive some of the decisions made in this adaptation. For example, changing the time period it's set in. I don't know why that decision was made. It didn't add yeah. anything to it. If it did, but it didn't take away anything from it either. It's just one of these weird kind of, I presumed it might be just because they needed to distinguish it from previous adaptations. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it didn't add anything to the story in any way, I was like, well, what was the point? Why not just keep it in the Edwardian era? I don't understand. Yeah. Um, but all these little moments and decisions just didn't seem to have any reason. There was no, and then the reasons there were, such as the importance of redeeming the parents, which is such the most, probably the most important theme in this adaptation was everyone making sure they understood that the parents were good after all. Um, it just is so, I just don't know why. Mind-boggling, so bizarre. I don't know why. Why do you need to, like, why we all know that parents can be crappy and some people I shouldn't be parents i know tons of people who are just not good parents end of story there's no <laughs> redemption to it <laughs> what why does he need to do this why did i and there's another thing that struck me about the film i've got a whole list of okay wait, 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 wait okay we'll get so yeah, okay. just to i like to clarify so it's the production company was produced by stx films studio canal heyday films fundamental films canal plus and cine plus because yeah. sometimes that influences oh so you can tell when there's been like lots of hands in a pot of something i definitely found through doing this of doing dozens of these that the ones with have the smallest budgets the tightest ship of who's working on it are the best adaptations the less interfere interference you have from other studios and other creatives and you just stick with your vision of this film the better it's likely to be the more chance of it being successful so just seeing that there is a lot of different potential interference says something i think 
So we start off in India in 1947, which you said. So they move it up because it's um, the Indo-Pakistani War. But that they still die of cholera. Yeah, no. But I, the thing is, like, again, if you want to make the the first five minutes of the film more realistic, but then that's only the fact. Like, I just don't. Again, if they they can make they can they can change the date and time so that it makes more sense they can make more drama out of the opening or whatever i just don't understand what impact why i just don't know what that adds to the rest of the story think impact has. it's because so they make the choice that um dickon and martha are black do you think to make it more realistic that you would have those relationships in the late 40s no because this isn't a film that cares about realism so <laughs> why why not still set it in nine in, in in the 1910s and still have black characters in it yeah. i feel like we, we live in a world where that is okay yeah. and, and that is what it's not real when, you can do what yeah. you want exactly and if you're going to have magical gardens and dogs burying under walls and and then i yeah. don't know if you have i don't know if you're going to have all the other stuff in it then then that is the least of your concerns mm-hmm. My suspicion is that they wanted to distinguish it from the 1993 film and they and they wanted to keep and, and in terms of style and fashion. Yeah. I want I think they wanted to have I, I just think it was a it was a production design choice yeah. rather than a story choice. Because so the 40s it meant clothes they, are cooler. Yeah, less, they could less conservative. The also the design of the house. I feel like it's specifically to have that wallpaper in the house. The wallpaper. <laughs> it's the best bit of the film. Okay, so this is my can I tell you my overriding theory yeah. with the Secret Garden new adaptation. My theory is they decided that the garden didn't matter yeah. and that the the real garden was the house. Mm-hmm. And that's why they have all the wallpaper that looks like gardens, all the all the yeah. they like that is the secret garden. The real secret garden is the house. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, well, interesting, whatever. Okay. And then they burn it down. Sorry, spoiler. But, yeah. but I'm like, <laughs> again, it's even if they wanted to go down that route and do something really experimental and transcendental with it and, and do something really kind of, I don't know, the idea of unlocking rooms right, in, and unlocking rooms in your head and, and, and just kind of exploring all of that. Why then destroy it why not have it thrive and come to life because that is what the story is that's that's what you're that's the theme of the book the theme of the book is things coming back to life yeah and also the work you have to put into bringing things back to life yes you could like it takes a little little blood sweat and tears they completely missed it so she's living in this palatial compound in india somewhere and you see her in her telling stories to herself like she's a lonely child but she yet she entertains herself and she's making these shadow puppets and she seems quite okay she looks very healthy i'll tell you who she is in this film she's not mary lennox she is actually sarah crew who? She she is she is the character from The Little Princess. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! Completely. That's who she is. She's not Mary Lennox in this film. Yeah. That is not Mary Lennox. That is Sarah Crew. Yes. So the actress playing Mary is Dixie Ergrix with Best an X. Yes. I know. Oh oh my god! I think yeah. her name's better than her acting, though. Personally, she's a kid. I don't expect much from kids. Like I don't. I expect what I get. Like I don't really. 
I'm not I'm not there to I'm not looking for an Oscar winning performance in a child I'm just looking for a story to be told <laughs> so she's sort of wandering around the ruins of this house that's been abandoned and she's hanging there's this very like specific shot of her hanging on this in the swimming pool looking sad there's some very bad CGI we hear you know we hear the backdrop of these shots being fired and we're not really sure how long she's alone but she's like eating old moldy food and then suddenly, <laughs> oh yeah, she's not drinking. How did she survive? But oh, apparently, oh they died from the war, not from cholera. I think they died from the. Hang on, what did I write in my notes? I was, um, yeah, no, I didn't write notes on that. I can't remember exactly what happened there, but I know I was just, I was waiting to see if they. I, I, I was gunning for it. I was like, come on, this is this is 2020. Go for it! Like we can cope with with cholera and and surviving cholera by getting drunk. Like, yeah. come on, we can cope with this. And I do know they backed out and they didn't go for it and they sanitized. Because also, it. would cholera make sense in that time period if you shifted it up to the late nineteen forties? I I don't know. I think it was wasn't it an incursion? Wasn't it like a fight or something? I don't know. I feel like it was actually more of a battlefield thing than anything yeah. else. I don't know. I can't. I wish I actually could remember that a little bit better. But it it, it just didn't seem to matter no. because I knew, and I think that it all you as long as you know that Marion's up alone, there was a lot more interaction with her and the people who find her. Yes. So the officers, the officer bursts in and is sort of shocked by her, and she's in the police station or whatever uh and they're you know finding that she has this uncle in england so they're going to send her off um and she gets on the ship with other children and she's very vaguely rude to the other children but they're even ruder back to her like you don't get any setup i find to her being a real brat at this point like she seems just kind of like a sad kid and just socially awkward did you get did you get kinder transport vibes i got kinder transport vibes i i got i got vibes of of um of world war ii and jewish children being taken in jewish children were sent over to live in the uk um kinder transport and i just the way they were sent or even not even maybe not even kinder transport but just the evacuees situation uh, for kids cities like which is again a link to narnia i think that mm-hmm. that i feel felt throughout this adaptation in a very bad way um I, I there's a you know there's the loneliness there's the getting abandoned but again it's the the joy of of, of original mary lennox is that she's cold and people can't understand why she's so cold and she's so bitter and she's so adult and yet in this you just i don't know there wasn't really i just you kind of felt like she was quite plucky and that she maybe yeah. she could figure it out herself in this rather than her just being you know a sour-faced contrary because then there's this whole bit of like she gets into this little bit of a fight with this kid and then she is talking to her doll and then throws it into the ocean and says i'm no longer a child it's like yeah, very weird. it's so bizarre it doesn't make sense at all in the context of this makes no sense makes no sense and again is that another place in the film where her imagination comes in again and and try kind of kind of takes yes. over a little bit and again that is again it's it's that's little princess that's not yeah <laughs> you know Did she he read the wrong book when he was adapting this i don't know, <laughs> he was... I don't know. He's, like, he's, the wrong girl. he's got the wrong character yeah. like Sarah Crew was the one with the vivid imagination who could yeah. draw stories out of thin air and and even in the harshest of environments still had hope and courage and storytelling 
and um mary lennox never had a childhood to begin with she didn't have any imagination as she was completely like she didn't know how to play or dead husk of a child (laughs) (laughs) she was she was blank she was bitter and blank and no one liked her and she was unlikable because she and she didn't like anyone she didn't want to be liked and and that's you know the glory of mary lennox at the beginning of of the story and this film was like no we just we just we don't want to do that we just want to have this symbolic tossing of a teddy bear for some reason i don't know so then she gets uh on the train to england with mrs medlock and you get the, the whole interaction, so it's Julie Waters who's playing Mrs. Medlock, who's a good actress, but seemingly this interaction between the two of them is just nothing. It's like eating a stale bit of toast. Well, Mrs. Medlock is a weird character in that you kind of expect her to be um, very, you expect her to be a strict schoolmistress. You expect yeah. her to be this really harsh, difficult um, uh, you know, headmistress head type, which is a character that comes up again in in Francis Hodgson's Burnett in The Little Princess. Um, but she's not; she's she has got soft edges. But then, it's she's she doesn't really have that defined a character. And I feel like Julie Walters playing her doesn't quite know whether to make her nice or mean. And mm-hmm. the note is it's not clear at all whether she's nice or mean, or whether she's going to play it nice or mean. And because in the the first adaptation, well, the 1990s one, she's very clearly mean. And they very make a very specific choice to be she's a mean woman. Well, it's Maggie Smith, isn't it? Yeah. You can't, yeah, you can't, she's just being Maggie Smith. She's being the dowager uh, countess. Uh, uh, she's, that's what she does really, really well. But she does, but she's mean for a reason in that. It's because she's trying to hold this house together with a screaming yeah. child in it. And another kid's come in and she's like, what's going on? In, in this, Julie Walters is just kind of like, I don't know. She doesn't really do anything or need anything. I don't know. It's, I so <laughs> we see Misslewaite, Miss, however you say, same in your Yorkshire accent. Wait. I won't say in Yorkshire accent, I'm saying in the posh accent, Misslewaite manner. Yeah. And there's a flit of a CGA Robin. Oh, God. <laughs> I, it was a real Robin in the first film, right? Robin in the first film. And I, again, this is my mistake, my hubris. I allowed myself some hope. I, I was, know. I was like, oh, the Robin, the Robin. I'm so excited about the Robin. And then, of course, I found that this is the only glimpse of the Robin we're going to get in the entire film. Where, could they not afford a real Robin? It's cheaper than a CGI Robin, right? I think they forgot the Robin entirely <laughs> post-production and went, oh no, we've got to have a Robin in it. It's Secret Garden. How can you not have a Robin? And they just sort of bung the Robin in there. Oh my gosh. I honestly think they forgot about it. Yeah, it does really feel do. like that. And she gets into this house and this bedroom, my gosh. <laughs> Again, this is why I'm telling you, I think the decision to move the film to the 1940s was purely to do with production design. I think they were going for a look and they decided that the only time period that they could, that they could achieve this look whilst also maintaining what they thought was the, the soul of the story, which didn't happen, but in, it, without moving it too far into the modern age, the only time they could really do was the fort, it was post-war. Um, and, that, and, and that allowed them to have a house that was dilapidated, but kind of, um, do you remember Shabby Chic? It's so mm-hmm. Shabby Chic. 
yeah it's so chic it's it's just completely the show I mean chic. I do like the wallpaper I'm not saying it's bad oh no it's lovely it's just it's just it's just so designed it's so obviously designed because who because in a real life scenario in a, one of these grand old houses in the 1940s post-war which has probably been co-opted to serve as a hospital or a army base or something during the war and it's now just been given back so it's probably all run down and shabby because they haven't been able to maintain it that kind of house would not have this kind of styling so it is it is done on purpose and that's it took me out of any sense of realism whatsoever which might have been the point it was like oh they just wanted to look cool and it just it and it does look cool but Mm -hmm. it also means a secret garden yes then she's under her bed sheet and she's fantasizing about being in the gardens in india and this really bothered me because I was like, she was looking, she looks like she had a grand time in India, that she had a great life. She had a great imagination. She played outside. She really enjoyed herself. This is actually what happens in A Little Princess. <laughs> this is the role. Yeah, because there is like a scene. I, she's like under the bed sheets and she's dreaming up, right? Sara Crew in Little Princess was also brought up in India, yeah, and it's taken back to the UK to yeah. uh, boarding school in in the UK because her parents, well, her her mother isn't around anyway, but yeah. her father is very wealthy, and then he and he needs to leave her in a boarding school and dies. But yeah. she was brought up in India, and she goes to this boarding school telling all these stories of India. And when she's incredibly poor, and when she's you know because every because her father dies, leaves her with nothing, and she has to serve as a servant, she survives by conjuring her imagination and by bringing hope to the people around her um even though she has not got much reason to hope and it is such a fundamental part of Sarah Cruz's character that she can conjure her imagination when she needs her, when she needs it most when she's at her most lonely her most poor she can bring to life the world in her head and 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 that's what happens here but it's the wrong film I I, then, I do think my theory is sound that he read the wrong book when researching to write or just this. got confused or just got confused like I don't know like it's it's just it's I was so shocked when I saw that bit that was the bit like obviously I was a bit like mm, I'm not sure about this and you know anyway up until this point but this was the point where I was like nope this is the point where I was like they have fundamentally not understood the character of Mary Lennox and what makes Mary Lennox so important yeah they they, they this 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 is not somebody who's yes she's suffering on a practical sense but she's not suffering on a soul sense her soul is yes she's lost her parents she's in pain and that's you know in a very normal way but she is also a very typical child yeah there is nothing unusual about her there's nothing that needs saving or cultivating or growing she's she's fine she just needs you know i don't know it's disappointing i was so i was so upset We get to meet Martha next. So she uh, comes in the next morning, played by Isis Davis, and she brings her her porridge. And then you get that little interaction, which is in the book where she says, do you like yourself? And she talks about, like, aren't you going to dress me? And those lines are taken from the book, but it doesn't really do anything. Then we get a glimpse of uh, Mrs. Medlock and the uncle, played by Colin Firth in... I feel, why did he do this role? I don't I know. This script is, he has nothing to work with. I mean. None of them do. 
none of them have anything to work with in this film. Like any, honestly, any time there's bad acting in this film, I will not put that on the actors. I, yeah. I, will, I will put that on the script because I don't think they all knew what they were doing. Um, I don't think they all had enough material or direction to know how to convey what they needed to convey and it was a mess but the other weird thing is they decide not to send Colin Firth away anywhere as yeah. far as I'm aware he spends the entire movie just in a different room in the house like yeah he's always he's, he doesn't leave he's he's always there he's just a loner within his big crumbling mansion just sad and mopey so they're yeah. arguing about something and then she decides to go outside to skip rope which is a nod to the yeah skipping rope in the book um then but, we lose yeah. the magic of her joy in in or her uh, not not maybe her, not her joy she's very confused when she first gets a skipping rope so but we we don't get that moment of her going huh what's this I what need to I, learn what, how, yeah. how do you play yeah she's and we lose all of that she we just yeah. suddenly see her skipping and it's just like oh so okay so she already knows how to play so okay She's eating this very depressing looking sandwich uh, in some grassy area and this dog comes along. <laughs> this very shaggy dog. Why is this dog in the film? I was like, feral dogs have parasites. Dog? I was just like, don't touch the dog. The dog will have rabies. Like, I, I, I was... Like we've beaten it out of the country now, but rabies was very much around in those days, yeah. and especially with feral dogs. And also, it was—I mean, it was—I just—I just, Nora, I'm—I can't even like articulate. <laughs> I don't know why this decision was made when there were already so many good. There were so many there. animals in the book. <laughs> so many. Why couldn't it have been a robin? Why did it have to be a dog? Why couldn't it have been a robin? Is a I, dog I cheaper than getting a trained robin? <laughs> I just, I look, I keep a CGI robin in there. I don't care. Just don't have a dog. Like it just, it just didn't. I just, unless I honestly can. Again, I'm imagining that 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 meeting with the producers in a, in a Hollywood studio and just them going, "Yo, we need we need a dog. <laughs> we need a dog. We need it. We need Pudsy in there." Like I don't know. They, I just feel like they're like, "Oh, kids love dogs. Put dogs in there." I, I kind of just no feel one like likes a bird. <laughs> again, they did not care about the story of this film at all. They just were like, "Let's just put a dog in there. Dogs gonna be amazing." Do you follow a dog? And but she again, if we're thinking of original Mary Lennox, an original Mary Lennox from the book that we've you know just been talking about, would original Mary Lennox know what to do with a dog? No, no, she would be terrified, she would be beaten, run with away. Dog. Yeah, it would. It's, it's this, this dog is, I don't know why it's there. So she gets into trouble when she gets back for being late, and Mrs. Medlock locks her in a room. There's this ginormous pony rocking horse pony in her room which comes in later <laughs> the most confusing plot device Why not? well one of the most confusing plot devices so she's crying in her room and she's staring at the wallpaper and it comes alive through her imagination again yeah wrong film <laughs> transported to india where she, we see like her mom uh being mean to her but her mom has reasons to it like i get it's that it's i, I this is yeah i mean apart from, i you can do the return to the parents if you need to mm -hmm. there's no harm in that if, if you feel like the parents weren't in it enough and you need to you know fair enough but 
this becomes what this starts off as and ends up becoming is a whole mission to forgive the parents and this is where is this where it starts and she actually you actually see a conversation with her father as well and her father is saying oh don't worry about your mom and your mom isn't i don't know it just it yeah it's so it's so annoying and it's so dull and it's so contrite and and just kind of very old-fashioned in a, in a strange yeah. way like it's not it's surely be more modern i like that it's like... more conservative than a book written in 1911 yeah. <laughs> which is mad and then the next day you have her going and she's playing with the dog and the the dog runs up to the garden wall and she's like "Ooh, there's something here and this is the first glimpse of the secret garden which not really a secret garden we will get to the garden i think it is on a different it's in a parallel universe it is it's a, a universe that you might want to call narnia yes <laughs> so then it's the night and she's wandering the house because she's been hearing this crying noise and then she finds this very posh sickly kid in his bed uh the actor is eden hayhurst who sounds like a posh kid himself and they dis- discuss this curse on the house and the house killed his mom and trying to kill him i mean he's fine it's just yeah whatever yeah. uh Par for the course for this film, and then you can't really go wrong with Colin, can you? I mean, unless you know, he, you can't really go wrong with Colin, no. really. I mean, he's no Hayden Prowse, yeah. Um, who, who I tweeted by the way, okay, when I was watching this film, I was like, oh, I miss Hayden Prowse, in the, yeah. you know, he's, no, he's 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 not sickly enough to look like Colin. I miss Hayden Prowse, <laughs> and Hayden Prowse replied to me because he's a comedian now, he's actually. Oh. He's actually quite famous now, okay. a little bit famous, and he's a comedian. And we had an exchange. Um, I don't know whether he. I still. I don't. I hope he understood my humour with it. Um, yeah. Because he's a comedian, but he he was he basically was just like, yeah, I need to beat that kid up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, he's the best, Colin. Um, but yeah, that I suppose that's the only thing I can really say about the new Colin is that he there was something about Hayden Prowse's performance in the first film and his just kind of. He really did look ill. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he really did look ill in that film. And in this film, you're a bit like, what has he got a cold? That's the other thing with Mary as well in this film. Like, she looks fine. She never looks unwell. There's no, like, yeah. in the 90s version of the film, there was, I mean, it wasn't a huge physical transformation, but she did change. When Mary Lennox in the first film smiled for the first time, you felt it because she yeah. hadn't smiled at all. And you felt like her face couldn't smile somehow, that it was mm. fixed that way. So when you saw her coming alive and just sort of slowly, think, you had that reveal. And she, you know, whether she was the greatest actress in the universe, I don't know, but she conveyed that sense of blossoming. Yeah. Even, you know, she didn't put any weight in the film. She looked pretty much the same, but she blossomed in that film. Mm-hmm. And in this film, she just looks like someone who is eager for an adventure like she looks like an adventurous boy kid which is great it's just not Mary Lennox (laughs) so we get another little flashback and it you get this vision of her playing with her father so that's sort of like a nod to like her dad was a good dad like she didn't have this 
Like, he was a good guy. His wife was depressed, but he tried his best with Mary. No, I don't need it. <laughs> I don't need good parents. Um, and <laughs> we have this another little bit um, with Mary sort of her confronting, oh, with Martha confronting Mary sort of about her personality, which doesn't really make sense in the personality in, in the sense of the book, because she seems kind of fine for the most part. Am then, I right in thinking that we get Colin first in this film and then and Dickin later? Yeah, so we get we get Mr. Craven next, so we get Colin. He's so brutish to her, is so confusing. Like he's just kind of a bully. Like he's not whereas in the book and the 90s version of the film, he's just kind of like awkward guy, doesn't really understand children. Whereas like he's a jerk in this yeah. one. Yeah. Then, then we get the dog getting caught in the trap. <laughs> so they're like, what is this trap? Where has it come from? Why is it there? People listening to this podcast can't see me throwing my head back in despair. <laughs> I, I, just, like, I just remember this is an audio uh, field, but yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't so then, know. I so don't then know. if I remember correctly, so the, the, he managed, she manages to get him out, but he's injured. So he's like run off and they wander along the wall of the garden and she climbs a tree and falls into, it's not like the proper secret garden, but it's still like this crazy wooded area. And it's like, it's a forest. Yeah. <laughs> garden. It's not a walled garden. It is it's so garden. confusing. <laughs> how does this work? Where are we in the estate? Like, how is this connected together? formed as well it is not a dead garden it is it is lush and it is green and it is not I I was hopeful for I really need to stop being hopeful I was hopeful for a moment because it didn't look groomed and I was like okay maybe she's coming in and it's wild and she is taming it maybe that's what they're going for but no it is it is lush and it is green and it is it is you know it's uh, these magical giant plants and big trees and forestry and again I very much had Narnia vibes I was just like she has stepped through a wardrobe into oh, another also something very specific in the book and I think this was very important to the author was English plants English vegetables and fauna because she very specifically described um, I think Dixon has this whole conversation with her about like different things that are gr- grown what season that are you know of native to the area and about the special plants in the Yorkshire moors whereas none of these plants are native to England (laughs) and in fact there was one moment where I was like is a Jurassic Park dinosaur going to be walking by because it it just felt it's so otherworldly and so obviously earthly but it was so it was so it was not it was it was it was another dimension it was it was Lyra's Oxford. It was it was Narnia. It was an escape. Alice and in Wonderland. I mean, Alice yeah. Wonderland. You got. I mean, this is something that I think is quite an interesting um, view of the read of the film is that the garden didn't exist, and the garden was purely in her head. And mm-hmm. I, I, the only thing that is, that that doesn't fit that I think is the ending. But there is, I think, a lot to be said for the idea that the garden doesn't actually exist, that Mm -hmm. it is a purely imaginative endeavour, which is why, which is actually was a theory I was going with, because I thought maybe the house was the real garden, but the garden that Mary was in was 
like the garden of her mind um and i thought that there were some elements that make that true particularly there's a moment at the end where the plants start dying and i was mm-hmm. just like oh okay yes it is in her mind this is this is purely her imagination doing this garden um and that part obviously that isn't followed through on as an idea but it was the only thing to me that made sense <laughs> she's sort of chasing after the, the dog and in this tropical jungle and there are yep. ancient ruins um and oh no the robin does land on top of an aztec sculpture and inside of the mouth of the sculpture is the key i i just yeah i can't i just can't with this film i can't it's just so just, ridiculous why would she be in the garden to get the key to the garden why does that make sense <laughs> Why can't she just always climb over the wall each time? Like, why does they even, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do away with that, why even have a key in the first place? Whereas the key doesn't matter anymore because she's already made the discovery. Like the joy of finding a key first and then trying to find where the key goes. I mean, that is, there's something so beautiful in that. What more do you need? You're in the, the tropics. You don't need to go anywhere else. As I said, I don't think this garden exists. I think this garden is in her head. And we've already seen that she can conjure things in her imagination. Um, and nothing about, we, there's nothing real, there's no realism here at all. Therefore, the garden doesn't exist. This is the garden of her mind. She's going crazy. Somehow, <laughs> she, <laughs> somehow she manages to hear Mrs. Medlock calling her from this other universe. And it's in her mind. She's not really there. <laughs> She's fallen asleep under a tree like Alice. Yeah. <laughs> she manages to walk over a magic tree that forms a ladder for her. And uh, then you have this whole fight with her and Medlock. And then there's this other scene where she, you hear Colin sort of ha- having a tantrum tantrum with Mrs. Medlock. Um, and then she kind of goes to console Colin and they start to bond with each other. Then you get the twin storyline. So she wanders into a a dressing room and she finds this shrine to the late Mrs. Craven, who's been renamed as Grace. Originally in the book, her name's Lilas. Lilas, I think, yeah. Lilias. Lilias, yeah. And she plays dress up and then you see the photos of her mum and her aunt and they're clearly twins. I have an issue with this room. Do you want to know my issue with this room? Okay. As uh, a tiny bit about about I used, I, I worked in muse- uh, in 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 museums for a little while, and I visit a lot of museums. This room has presumably been there as a shrine for ten years. Mm-hmm. You can't just leave clothes on mannequins just ordered like an exhibition mm-hmm. for ten years. Yeah. Like that kind of styles and fashions, and that in that kind of house those are going to get moth-eaten and dusty and right you know they're not gonna like you can't that room is too perfect yeah like everything in there is too stylized I said I I feel like so much in this film was sacrificed for the sake of production design Mm -hmm. and I feel it's another element where they just wanted to make sure everything looked cool um and and screw any form of realism but if you're going to build a shrine to a dead like why would you have it looking like a museum piece Mm -hmm. like you would you would either create one of those weird shrines you see in horror movies where people are stalking people and you just have a little altar, or you leave you have a personal room and you leave it how it 
was yeah. when they were in there. which would this make more the, sense yeah this is neither of those this is a this is an exhibition in the victoria and albert museum yeah because <laughs> then so yeah. then martha spills the tea about how essentially she explains the whole point of this uh dressing room is that her mom and her aunt grace and how they were best friends and how her mom became very depressed when her sister died and then you have flashbacks to her mom being sad in india and you're like the mother's been depressed for 10 years and unconsolable after her sister died which we find out knowingly from a disease like she was ill I don't want to like, I don't want to like depression and anxiety is very real. I've suffered from depression during parts of my life quite badly. And um, I know it can, it can be life changing and it can go on for long periods of time. And I don't want to diminish that. If anything though, I feel like here is where it's not done properly. It's used as a device to explain a behavior that doesn't need explaining because yeah. Francis and Burnett didn't bother explaining it because some parents are just bad. And um, the the need here, the absolute to justify need it, to justify it, uh, yeah. just is so annoying, mm-hmm. and it's and it becomes what the whole film is about, and it's it just really really annoyed me so much. I I don't I don't care about the parents. I care about Mary, but then well, in this film, Mary isn't someone to care about because yeah, she's because be- it's. I mean, it's one thing to take the perspective to want to have a discussion about the mental health of the parents and how that affects children, which is a very important discussion. Uh, but that's not what this book is meant for. Not the soul of this book. That is no, not- it's another not- movie. And that's fine if you want to do that movie. But <laughs> at 10 years old as well, you don't need to have Mary like learning as Mary's allowed to be angry and pissed off yeah and she and, she and also for a 10 year old to be explained to you know your mother was a horrible mother but it's because this traumatic thing happened to her and that's why she couldn't be there for you when you're 10 it's sort of like it doesn't matter and you're not there to you know relinquish the you know the parents of this there's a Guilt. lot about forgiveness in this film. There's a lot about the need to... It's not her job to forgive them. No, of course not. I don't know why the writer thought that this was the most important thing. <laughs> you find this out. She sort of dresses... They do the bit, and it doesn't really make sense anymore in the context of a story where she like dresses herself for the first time. And then we meet Dickon, who's played by Amir Wilson. And so she shows him the secret garden and the dog and the injury and Dickon washes the wounds and then the garden mad the garden will magic him well I'm pretty sure is what he says and the grass sort of swarms around the dog and heals it yeah I have my issue with this Dickon is that he is he is too, like Dickon is a little bit detached because he's a, he's a nature boy. Yeah. But this Dickon is so far gone detached that he 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 ignores Mary the first time she calls him. You know what I said before about yeah. how 
Like, oh, yeah, I forgot the, in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. The joy of their friendship is that he likes her and she likes him. And it's, and it's, and it's easy and it's nice. Yeah. Um, and in this, he's like, he doesn't even go near her. Um, it, it's, it, I also, I don't know whether I missed something, whether I interpreted it wrong. Was Dickin the one who set the trap? Oh. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot it. I don't know, and I'm not sure, but I didn't Why think would he? Exactly. I, I, I caught the impression for a moment that he wasn't just a simple nature boy who was kind of magical, that yeah. um, instead he was a working guy and that he was he was working on the moors and working to protect keep the moors. Um, yeah. Um, and, and part of that might have been setting traps and mm. part of that might so it's it's a different type of uh, of nature boy so it's it's yeah. a practical farm boy you know you have to you know you can raise animals on a farm but sometimes you have to kill the animals like I yeah. feel like it's a I feel like it was that vibe unless I got it completely wrong and I must admit there were places in this film where I just didn't have enough interest and attention to pay attention because I was just like I don't care and this is really why would he magic the dog well if he was trying, he wasn't trying to catch the dog he was yeah. trying to catch something else maybe a wolf yeah. or something. like maybe he was trying yeah. he was trying to catch something but not the dog so the dog needed to be helped because he wasn't expecting the dog anymore but um he is he's not good again he's another character who's not given anything to do he's not given any good enough script he he's he's very detached from the film i know he's a good actor because he's been brilliant in his dark materials he is he is absolutely fantastic in that and in this i just kind of felt like he wasn't always there yeah um he was aloof and strange but not in the good way um i wouldn't understand why he's so appealing other than he's just you know it, it, there's, there's not the same romantic appeal as dickin is meant to have and again i use romantic not in the actual romance sense but in the literature you know literature high romance kind of sense he's he's not a hero in this that, that you want to that you might have i mean for me it wasn't even just the um dickson dickens thing it was the whole magic will take care of everything yeah it has nothing to do with you taking care of yourself taking responsibility hard work and perseverance yeah. It's all out the window. Magic's there to help. Very much like a white male privilege thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get better on its own. It'll be fine. Yes. He, had, he had crow feathers in his outfit, um, but he didn't have a crow. Yeah. Um, that was sad because um, I thought the crow, I love the crow in the book. Um, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've had some crow goings on in my own life. I feel very quite an affinity with crows. We no. had a crow attack our house from the beginning of lockdown we had a crow attack our house this one window and the crow would come every day mm -hmm. and start pecking and squaring and going mad at our at our house and literally attacking our house we think it was seeing its reflection in a window yeah. in one particular window and was just attacking that window and it went on for most of the summer until we got a this is a real thing the only thing that will deter a crow is a dead crow so you can get these fake dead crows that you can hang up yeah and and we have we have a dead crow hung up on the side of our house um to deter the crow did it work it did work it oh did wow work. um the crow it, the crow's still around i hear it cawing but i i feel like i i end up learning quite a lot about the crows and so when i was like revisiting this certainly the film and seeing the crow in the film hearing the sound of that crow because honestly, I'm quite triggered by crow sounds now. 
crows to arrive at like 4 35 in the morning so it used yeah. to come at sunrise so we would be woken up with a crow every morning and so now it's quite a triggering sound and i missed the crow in this i feel like where's the crow where's dickens mm. crow the crow is like the demon if you yeah. want to know it is and the crow, all we got was some crow feathers in like a symbolic crow in, in the outfits of, uh, of, of, of Dickon. And I, I was just like, I just don't understand the choice. I don't understand the choice. Like if you're going to make a choice, if you're going to change something so fundamentally, have it make sense, have it, have it, have it add something to the story that you wouldn't have seen before, or you wouldn't have recognized, or don't just make a change because you want to make a change and I feel like Dickens another one that suffered for that yeah so then we have uh her telling Colin about the secret garden and taking him in his wheelchair to his mum's closet and shows him the pictures of his mum and he and and oh she talks about the fact that in one of the photos she sees them as children together and how he's standing up and he looks fine and healthy and then he is sort of in denial and they have this huge argument um, this is playing into my theory of the house being the garden because mm -hmm. that fun that breakthrough any any breakthroughs they have or any development they have is happening in the house yeah and and isn't with reference to the garden at all yeah um, because that's they also she makes him show her his back which she says looks fine Dickon and Mary are in the yeah. garden and the roses are magically growing uh, on their own of course there's no gardening involved in this film whatsoever uh, they find they also find the yeah so they found the gate to the secret garden which is just like another little alcove within the main garden I guess and Martha catches the two of them in the hallway together and they get into sort of this little tiff um, but then she manages to sneak Dickon in to see Colin for the first time and they take Colin to the the garden and there's this whole thing and I think they use it a few times is the ceiling of yellow flowers yeah Dickon, Mary, and Colin are in the garden for the first time together. And you have this very specific shot of like these yellow flowers over them when they're like running through. It's like, okay. Magical dog. Uh, uh, they're in the garden with the dog. Um, and I'm just like, what lazy kids. They're just so privileged. <laughs> they haven't had to work for anything. There's, there's nothing, nothing's learned. Yeah. They don't learn anything in this film. It's apart just from like, how to give their parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I, I imagine as a kid, if this was the book or watching this as a film, I wouldn't get anything out of it. Yeah. I, I just don't, again, I don't, I really want to know the, why these choices were made. Like, whether it's Maybe just... the people who wrote it and directed it aren't very good parents and they are trying to tell their kids that this is why. <laughs> oh my goodness I don't, don't blame us for your messed up childhood <laughs> i just want to check my notes to see if there's anything else i know i was picking up on like so many things um at the time oh one thing you do notice is just how saturated all the colors are in this yeah and it's a very very colorful film and it's very very beautiful to look at but i feel especially like especially her dresses her outfits are very 
everything is everything is just really lovely and sumptuous and I feel like again if you're going to go with that stylistic choice you make that something we earn so mm-hmm. you you start off gray and become saturated at the end like yeah. or something like that I don't know there, there are ways to make that work other than you just want this film to look good and look cool but um yeah it's it's just I was going to see who the costume designer was because I mean I will give kudos to that and like the set design it's beautiful it's no. just not it's just not what is meant to be <laughs> it's, co- it's the like. costume designer from the crown and mamma mia well, they're very good costume design. They're beautiful yeah. costumes. It's just they're not just not right. Something I've written on my notes, um, and I can't remember it in the film, but I've written it, and I've written did not like the ants on the hands. Very sinister. Do you remember the ants? No. There's a whole thing with ants. They find bugs and ants crawling all over them. And I was like, really? There's a few bugs in this film. There's a bit on her dress where there's a butterfly on her dress. Oh, yes. Oh, and they're like one's kind of moving. Oh, and then there's the thing where like moss is covering her. It's very strange. So Mrs. Medlock tries to like find out where they're going. And then she she gets into trouble. So there's this huge thing where they she like took the pearls for some reason from the mother's closet which is a bizarre thing for her to her to have done does it make sense that she would have stolen so mr craven gets mad at her and that she was messing with his wife's closet again he's so angry at her it's so bizarre and they are going to send her to a boarding school and then she gets locked in her room i just it's really gone off the rails like it's kind of <laughs> there's isn't there a threat of education in the first in, in the book there's they they think about getting a governess for her and she goes oh no i don't need one yet and something there's, there's that there is yeah. I mean, that that kind of feeds off something in the book but again whether it's necessary here like again i don't understand any of it's just it's just one confusing choice after confusing choice our big rocking horse comes into play. Very important. So she's throwing this crying fit, knocks over the most ginormous rocking horse I've ever seen. She's quite a strong child. And it happens to open up and reveal all these letters that her, for some reason, that the aunt has hidden uh, that her and her mother were writing to each other. Um Again, we learn that this film is not about Mary or the garden. It's about her parents, her mother specifically. Um, and it you discover about their beautiful relationship and then how they would go to the tree in the secret garden and hang out. And I think they we find out also that the mother the aunt her aunt was quite sick and wanted to die in the garden and i guess she went to die there which okay i mean i don't know i again it's all the changes that were made were made to justify behaviors that didn't need justifying in the first place again it's, it's finding it's retconning yeah. um the stuff that you didn't like in the book but the stuff that the, they didn't like in the book was the stuff that actually made the book what it was. <laughs> I just, 
I mean, I'm completely, I'm confused at why, because, you know, assumingly the people who did this film reread the book like us as adults and that they read it and thought, oh no, it's the parents we need to talk about. We need to redeem them. I just, I don't know. I don't, like, I, I, I almost like, I, I almost like lose articulate things to say because yeah. it just there's nothing that really makes sense. So we have garden is a mass hallucination and doesn't matter. What matters is the mums. <laughs> yes. So they. Oh, this is where actually I did write it down. So they, the three of them, sneak into the garden and they um, take Colin swimming, and they play with bugs. I did write this down. And they take him to the tree where there's the swing and he gets upset and makes um, them take him home. And when he's upset, the garden dies behind them. I just, he, I mean, the tree is obviously traumatic, but it also implies they've all been in the garden before. We know they were in this film, they've all been in the garden before. They were all there as children, like as young, young children. So again, you, you lose some of the impacts of discovering the garden you lose some of the mystery of the garden as well because the garden's always been there but also it's fascination so yeah so then she's they go back home and she's alone in the room and then has this other fantasy well going back into her memories of seeing her mum and her dad talking to her and she tries to confront Colin with the letters and it yeah I think one of the how quickly Colin is able to walk um because they don't show any you know it's, it, it's he just suddenly is able to get up again so yeah. I don't know in here this film you get an ice bath you get all kind of you realize there's, there's, there's lots of trouble happening with him but um it seems to be as much like he's he's not yeah I don't know it's hot it's so hard sorry it's so hard to articulate myself on this film when you just find it so hard to care for any of the characters as much well, it's almost it, done. It, it almost it's all not burns. Just because you know the story already, but because the meaningful part. Of the story. Now I'm not on Wi-Fi, so hopefully she will be fine. Okay. <laughs> she, so she's confronted Colin with the letters. He can walk again by magic. Obviously, it's not yep. magic. Um, Mrs. Medlock gives her the school uniform because they're going to send her to boarding school, and then uh, Mary confronts Craven about what he's doing to Colin and that you know he's actually fine and then Mr. Craven starts drinking because he's an alcoholic it seems <laughs> I say the boarding school thing is also very little princess because she's sent to boarding school yeah. um it's also there's a little it's not quite nonary because they're not sent to school but again I just get I don't know there's some very other children's literature vibes that you get from this whole kind of threatened to send boarding school, which doesn't exist in the book. But I suppose the book it comes from most is another Francis Hodgson Burnett one. Whether they thought they could steal from it because of that, I don't know. But um, yeah, it didn't. It is. It's like a mashup of a bunch of, of the two books really more than anything. It really is. He drops a candle match because he's so drunk and... <laughs> Mary's run away and the three children are in the garden together and then there's a fire and we suddenly suddenly entered into Rebecca we have entered into Rebecca now um or or Jane Eyre yeah or Jane Eyre (laughs) 
So I got really confused with the timeline on this because he he it looked I thought it was evening or nighttime when he drops the match. Yeah. And then we see the garden, it's daytime. So I was because when you see him drop the match, I was like, well, that looks ominous. And then he switched to the garden, you're like, well, obviously it wasn't ominous on ominous because that was the night before. So therefore everything's fine. And then you're like, oh wait, no, that wasn't nighttime. <laughs> that was still the same time. And I yeah, I it's unless the three of them spent the night in the garden. Unless they're all dead in that house and it actually depends. <laughs> I just again I don't think the lines between reality and um and realism are so blurred in this film. And yeah. I don't think they're blurred on purpose. I think it's an accident and it's really hard to understand. Um I don't I think there may have been intention when this film was first you know jumped up but all that intention was lost and you just get left with something where you're not sure if it's real or if it's imaginary and you're not given any clue as to what you're meant to feel or think anyway um and it's just it's really but it's also really distressing and again it, the theory of the house being the garden mm-hmm. works because they need to it, it, this is not the same as, as how we play in the book but there's a sense of in order for them to move on they have to burn it down like they have to destroy something in order to move yeah. on which is the opposite to how it should be from the- yes because you have to grow the- something <laughs> exactly but it becomes a cleansing it mm-hmm. becomes a that's I feel like that's what it's meant to be it's meant to be a cleansing but whilst all that's going on am I right in thinking that the garden is is dying as well there's like there's all these scenes of the gar- of the giant plants dying back when does yeah. that happen no, that happens though when she got into the fight with Colin. Oh yeah, that was they, about- they go back when they're the, when the three of them go back to the garden. It automatically goes back to being fine. Yeah, it's it's not again again playing into the idea that it's all in their heads somehow, or that it's it's not. It, there's some there's they're playing maybe they're playing a game. Maybe they're seeing like it might not be magical imaginary, but it might be that they are having a shared imaginary play yeah. and we're seeing As that like again. children yeah yeah and then maybe Which doesn't work because it doesn't work but it works in the sense of the father joining in in that because they're all dead they're all dead because they're all dead they're all dead the other thing i don't know if we're like thinking right about the ending the joy of the first of the book and of the first film is that you get this sense of beginning mm-hmm. you get this sense of now they can get on with their lives and in fact the ending of the first film did something really really beautiful which I wasn't sure was in the book and I was upset wasn't in the book when I did go back and read the book um that Colin has learned Colin's father are laughing mm-hmm. and then but Mary has learned to cry and there's yeah. a sense of oh, yeah. she could never express her emotions and that she was all bottled up. And then finally seeing them all laughing allowed her to cry for the first oh, time. Oh yeah, because she's and jealous, which is... Yeah. Well, no, I interpreted it as jealousy, but also of finally being able to mourn her own parents. Yeah, yeah. That's so it was that. a release. It was a release and a growth. And, you know, there was work to be done. Whereas in this film... I'm actually genuinely worried for the future of the Craven family, their employees and Mary, because in this kind of, in that kind of financial setup, the house is the asset. And if you lose the house, we don't know. A lot of the rich landowners are rich in property, but they don't have any cash. And considering how dilapidated that house was, I'm a little bit concerned that they're now all destitute 
and what are they going to do? Live with Martha uh, and Dickens. Yeah, it's it leaves such a you watch the house burn at the end, and it doesn't leave a sense of. I I think they were intending for a cleansing experience, but what I got was a what like where are they going to live? Like Mary's already lost her family and her home once. Like what? What is happening? What? Where and are these also, people going? It doesn't make sense for Mary not to mourn because she had a good relationship with her father. Exactly. That was the other thing. She had a great relationship with her father in this film. But you've got to remember, Nora, that that sometimes fathers are not important. It sometimes it's only the neglectful parent that's the important parent. Mm-hmm. So um, only 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 her mother matters and only Colin's um, father matters because they are the ones who neglect. The caring parent is as if they don't exist. (laughs) So she goes back to the house. Oh yeah, no, the timeline actually doesn't make sense anymore then because he dropped the match in the night and then he wakes up in the morning and the house is on fire and he goes looking for Colin. But they were all in the garden the whole time. Yeah, which is mad it made no sense it made no sense unless again unless the garden's imaginary <laughs> so mary <laughs> comes to rescue him and then fantasy grace and alice lead them out and <laughs> martha and dixon come get them and then outside the house mary leads mr craven to the garden where colin is and i think he screams magic or something and then Mr. Craven says, how is it that we are taught by our children? Oh, it's the, the, again and again, I think that punctuates the theory that this film is about the parents learning. That is, that is like a full stop on the theory that this film is not about the children at all. Mm-hmm. The children don't grow. I mean, Colin obviously learns to walk and everything but Mary I don't know what she learns in this she doesn't develop she doesn't change from the beginning to the end of the film she's just confronted with obstacles that she overcomes but she doesn't actually change in any way shape or form and so the final line of them being that oh well the children are here to help the adults know what to do just kind of confirms the whole theory that that what is the fundamental importance in in this film is for the parents to be redeemed and it's really sad. Yeah. It's so what we normally do at the end of these things is that we give a rose and thorn for the book slash film. Right. And I don't know if you have any that you've thought of, like your favorite and worst bits. Favorite bits of the film, mm-hmm. of the or of both, of the book and the film. Yeah. Um favorite bit of the book is when mary counts her friends and realizes that she is a friend to somebody else that resonated so much to me as someone who struggled a lot with friendships as a kid and she she genuinely was realizing that she could be a friend to someone and that that someone could be a friend to her and it was just beautiful little moment um the the in the book generally the second half has a slump so that's my thorn it's just like the plot loses momentum completely um the film look it's it the costumes are lovely would i would i happily go to a hotel that's decorated with that wallpaper and stay in those rooms for a few nights absolutely it's it but 
it, I feel like the thorn in, is that the film is all artifice. The film doesn't have a soul. Um, it is just about looking good, hitting a mark and just kind of getting it done without actually remembering what the book is really about and what's important to the book. So yeah, the rose of that film is that it looks pretty. <laughs> I, I, I will steal yours as well, that the rose is the aesthetic of it, like her outfits, the wallpaper, the decor is stunning. They don't really make sense, but they are very well done and designed. And that just the entire story structure does not make sense. So that's, you know, and I think for me in the book, I loved the bits where it was her learning about gardening and doing the work and creating something through her work. I just, for me, that was sort of the thing I connected with is that you can make something beautiful. Anyone can learn and create if you put the effort into it. I thought it was amazing. And then I think the section that was through um, his father's uh, perspective when he's like in the mountains of Austria it just was, well, didn't really make sense for me. Do you know what the first the the 1990s film really did that well because yeah. they really went full all in on the magic and it was the kids doing that magic circle of chanting which brought the father back mm -hmm. and I thought that was really nice like it was very pagan it was very like any sort of I feel like that's probably what Francis Hodgson would hate because <laughs> it kind of removes any sort of Christian element that she might have intended out from that completely because that is just pure witchcraft that mm -hmm. brings him back but it actually ties in I think better with the gothic feel of the novel um yeah. and the, the general ambiance and I feel like that is something that the the 1990s film did really really well of bringing that in and just kind of taking what the book had and um and kind of developing it and and giving it a flavor that suited it um while keeping the realism at the same time and this film, I don't know what it was doing. I'd love, I really would love to see an interview with, I, I'm not so interested in the director so much. I'm really interested in the screenplay because mm -hmm. it's a story that really let this down. Um, I feel like the director on a film would, would is has their script and needs to film that yeah. script. Sometimes it's but just a script, pay for hire. But if the script is flawed, then what are you going to do? And then I'm thinking what happened in the edit and what yeah. happened, you know, in post-production. There's so many people who work on a project that no one thought, oh, this is not very good. Because <laughs> clearly some <laughs> other people working on the film would have read the book. It's a, I mean, this is a film that's that's out of, I mean, the story's out of copyright. So I don't think it was, unless it was a rights thing with the studio and they wanted to keep the rights to Secret. Was it the same studio that made The Secret Garden? Mm, I don't think so. I'm trying, think. again, I'm trying to come up with reasons they made it. Like, <laughs> It's, I mean, it's a classic children's story. Someone was like, "Oh, I like this book. You know, we can make money." Yeah. It's you and know. they didn't, did it? Because it's come out in a pandemic. They haven't made. Yeah, made any I know. Money well, on. it's sort of like they don't deserve to make money necessarily from this. Like, I don't want to screw the people who worked on the film, but it just sort of like uh, um, I'm just looking to see. It was Warner Brothers who did the original film, which is different um, than the current one. So. So someone obviously loved it and I, I like to hope it's a passion project for someone. Um, I feel like this film is going to be forgotten really quickly and not just because of the pandemic and, you know, cinemas being closed and it not getting a wide release, but I feel like it might be for the best. 
Um, well, there has been 17 adaptations. <laughs> but it is, I, I don't mind these. I don't, I, I, this is the thing. I think there's some, some things I'm just, there are, there are some things out there that I'm tired of getting adapted. And there are definitely some things that I'm tired of being adapted. Like, I don't think, am I right in thinking there's another Pride and Prejudice on the way or something? I'm sure. I, it's like yeah. an annual tradition to have a new Pride and Prejudice. For every time to end unto every generation, there shall be a Pride and Prejudice. Like, I... I don't mind like I feel like stories come in there are some stories that come in really well with time and can you can find new meaning in them and I think Little Women was actually a really great example of that where I think when they announced New Little Women it was like no it's the, the you know we still have the nostalgia effect of the other one um but this Little Women brought gave us a really accurate except um, for Emma Watson <laughs> Yes, and the hairstyles in the film as well. Yeah. I I was really I was really removed from it. From we the did hairstyles. we did an episode it. on that Little Women, but we also we watched all five other adaptations <gasps> and compared them. But everyone brings something. No, new. and all of them were good. There was not having watched like six Little Women films. All of them had something about it, and they were all interesting. I wouldn't. Yeah, all of them I would recommend. I wonder if. The Secret Garden is a book that can adapt with the times um, in the same way because it's the, because the stakes are so low in it because it's just about growing a garden and yeah. it's just and it's set very clearly in a time period and um, the characters have very set sort of archetypal journeys. I'm I I would have loved an, a new adaptation that didn't wasn't necessarily 100% faithful mm -hmm. but brought something to light in the story that we hadn't seen before or perhaps was a different reading of the story whether that was bringing out the magic or maybe it was bringing out the opposite and doing it really realistic and just yeah. giving us a, a new dimension on on that story but this film did neither this film was scrappy and strange and 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 dead it, there was something despite all the bright colors there was something very dead about it like there are so many things I just can't even remember properly about it and I saw it most more recently than the than the 1993 one which I watched about a month ago and um yeah. that one is I mean that, that might be a bit more vivid because I watched it a lot as a kid but um and I will and I will always say there's a nostalgia factor that goes on of course the 1991 is going to be best because I watched it as a, as a child of course it will but it does hold up yeah. and and a lot of characters wear masks in it and I felt that quite pleasing as well <laughs> but it, it would be like I think you know and I think you're right a fresh perspective like do it in a more urban setting do it in a city and you could talk yeah. about like the environment and how that comes to play when you're living in an urban environment what it means for children growing up today could be really yeah. interesting it doesn't oh have to be you could do an evacuee story. You could literally set it in the same time period yeah. with the same thing and have her her parents in the Blitz and her losing her parents, still having the negligent yeah. parents, but losing them in the Blitz and having to move to the countryside in Yorkshire or wherever and still having to learn that. And you could keep the 1940s if you want to Can you please write that? that? Go write the screenplay, <laughs> please. Follow your first your, your movie right for that screenplay. That sounds like such a great movie and it makes sense and it still works and there's no... Yeah, and you don't have the sort of the imperialist connotation of Indiri. <laughs> because that didn't, that didn't bring, there was, not, that didn't, there was no relevance of that to yeah. the film other than her imagination running wild. But again, that wasn't, 
in meant to be in this film and you can still have someone be really imaginative and then not grow up in India to be imaginative yeah um it's there's a, there's some baffling elements I'm 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 half fascinated by it half appalled by it because I want to know how these things happen and if it's easy to if, if if all these mediocre people can create this then how do I get in? Because <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm like, if they can hire us, do Come that, on. Then- <laughs> you're throwing money. Oh, I, I just, it says the budget was 18 million US dollars. That's not a big budget. No, but then- but I throw a tiny fraction of that us at us and we would have made a much yeah. better movie. <laughs> there was a lot of CGI in this film and, yes. um, and unnecessarily so like it was yeah. you did not need it but cgi isn't quite as expensive nowadays as you think like it doesn't cost that much to do mm-hmm. anymore and there was nothing in there that was like a big were there any big practical effects i suppose the fire was really i don't know mm-hmm. how much of the fire was cgi it was probably probably the, the most bird. expensive the bird was clearly very cheap <laughs> um, cheap cheap um <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I can't believe they gave us the robin for that tiny moment and then we never saw a robin again in the whole film it's a dog a bloody dog very why why was there a dog but it is it reeks of a producer just going put a dog in it like it's very very sell better or something dumb like that (laughs) i'm watching that dog has rabies (laughs) oh my gosh thank you so much nicole for bearing through this with me (laughs) But I did. I enjoyed the reread of having an excuse to reread it. I did, and I'm enjoying my read currently of, of the biography of. It's really cool. Yeah. If you haven't read the adult books, I really recommend them. I'm really rather fascinated with her. I I get I get neurodiverse vibes from her as well. Reading about her childhood and yeah. and some of the things, some of her behaviors in childhood, which is really interesting. Um, and yeah, just she she was she was pals with Mark Twain. Mark Twain wanted to write a book with her, or he, Mark Twain. What? Had this- Mark Twain had an idea where he wanted her and another writer and him to all have write their own versions of the same story with the same characters and do their own kind of thing. And it never happened. Um, Oh my God. (laughs) She was kind of a celebrity. She was really good friends with um, which, which president was assassinated that wasn't Lincoln. There was one who was only in president for a few days and then he was assassinated, but she was really good friends with him in Washington. And also, my favourite fact about Frances Hodgson Burnett is the name of her husband. The name of her husband is the greatest name for a man I've ever come across in my life. Okay. He was called Swan. Swan <gasps> Burnett. But she hated it. Okay. And they met children because she was like incredibly well read as a child. She was reading all over the place and he was fascinated by her and they were like childhood sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they didn't really have a happy marriage um, but um she never liked his name at all and she refused to call him swan so she throughout there are phases in her life where she had different names for him so when you apparently go through her letters you have to work out like what she's calling her husband um, but she kind of maybe had an affair with her editor at one point they had a really unhappy marriage like yeah. they weren't on the same page <laughs> in the throughout their marriage but I think they felt quite obligated to each other yeah. um but yes yeah, Swan Burnett Swan Burnett That's a great name Ooh, I, I like I, it a guy named Swan I am I just I'm there I, for it I love it so much I think it's so utterly romantic it's yeah. just such a great name but he ended up being an ophthalmologist so I don't know <laughs> how 
<laughs> hunky he was yeah I, I I really get the impression that she felt like she had to marry she put off their engagement that they were engaged for a long time she kept putting off the marriage oh, no. and then eventually he was like you have to marry me now and she was like oh damn it okay <laughs> um would you like to tell the listeners some social media handles to so they can hear more of your great opinions you're great on twitter <laughs> Uh, Twitter is probably where I am the most. Um, I don't really do Instagram or anything because I I prefer writing stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's just my name at Nicole Burstein. So as long as you're spelling my name right, then I come up. Yes. Um, and that's it, really. Yeah. No, you you're very fun to follow on Twitter. I did quite enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. You know, sometimes you're tweeting stuff. You're like, this is a good tweet, and then you get no. Just putting it out into the black hole that is Twitter and seeing if anyone, you know most of the time now that was great thank you 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 know you're always welcome to join any other episodes if you're ever interested that was quite an epic one this is fun and any time when I'm I can have opinions over something I'm passionate about yeah yeah, I just it's so sad to be so 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 utterly passionate about a story and then to be so disappointed by the adaptation like I wish there was something like redeeming about the story that I could take from it but it was incredibly disappointing and if anyone hasn't seen it yet I would just go and watch the 1990s one it's on Netflix Um, and it is really magical because it's so quiet and um, and um, yeah Maggie Smith gives a great performance Hayden Proud is fantastic as a very sickly Colin. And you actually feel like he can't walk. You really look at him, you think those legs aren't going to do it. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) I mean, the book is better than the film, 100% in this instance. And it's worth a read. It's it's strange for a book that was written over 100 years ago now. um, Yeah, to feel so fresh and so exciting, especially the opening, you know, the opening. The first third, I'd say, of that book is that it can't be beaten it is astounding yeah. and despite it being 100 years old it's it's brilliant mm-hmm. thank you thank you, thank you.